three, two, one. Boom. What's up, brother? How What's are up, you? Bro? Good to see you, my friend. <laughs> Always. Thanks it's for been having me. a while, me. man. Yeah. We've both been busy. It's crazy. And in the meantime, weed became legal. Yes. <laughs> you guys were at the forefront, man. You guys were way ahead. You were ahead of everybody. You know, we took a shot. <laughs> we took a shot, you know, as stoners and advocates and whatnot. You know, we were stoners at first, right? You know, that's how you start. Like, you know, right. your friend says, hey, man, try this. Or you're the one who says, try this, right? It's one or the other. And, you know, eventually you start getting into the High Times magazines and stuff like that and looking at the, you know, the centerfold pictures of the weed, but also <laughs> we, we like we like to read too <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> so, you know, we'd get into some of the activism aspect of it as well. And that's when we heard names like Jack Herrera, who pretty much opened our eyes to everything. And then, you know, I think we became real advocates. You know, at first, you know, we thought we were, yeah. you know, sort of, we read the High Times magazines and we were stoners, so we thought we were advocates. But like in reading what other freedom fighters were actually doing out there and the protests and rallies and all that stuff, you know, we we really weren't advocates like we thought. We became that later for sure. Yeah, Jack was way, way, way ahead of the curve. He's a, such an interesting story, uh, rest in peace, because he was uh, a Goldwater Republican. You know, yeah. he was uh, just a button down old school Republican. Yeah. <laughs> and then he got a girlfriend. And then his girlfriend <laughs> got him smoking weed. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's like, man, this is fucking amazing. God, why am I such a dick? What's wrong with me? Who am I? What am I doing with my life? Absolutely. It yeah. totally flipped his life around. Yeah. The Emperor Wears No Clothes is a fucking great book, man. Yeah. It holds it holds strong to this day because everything yeah. that he said in the book is sort of happening right now. All the stuff that they, you know, they, they uh, tried to prevent from happening through all the anti-cannabis propaganda. Yeah, you you see it now, and now you see those very companies trying to get into the industry. Yeah, they were always on the outside, like waiting. You know, there yeah. was like at the launching block, not quite ready to run, but any minute now it's going to get legal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they're they're lying in wait with fields like acreage that no one can ever come close to. Probably right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the the thing I heard maybe like five years ago before it was legal in Denver. Or uh, it was a bit bit longer than that before we got legalization here. Um, that you know, companies like Philip Morris and and you know companies like that were already buying land and already um, trademarking names. Yeah, you know, for some of the cannabis that we know today, so that when they come into the game. You know, they have ownership on some of the names and some of the brands and, and, and trademarks and stuff like that to that. And obviously, the acreage to, you know, grow vast sums of cannabis. Yeah. You know, who knows how true that is, but I don't doubt some of that. I don't doubt it either. The sneakiest shit was Ohio. Ohio was, they were trying to make it legal, but if they were going to make it legal, there was only like, it was like two companies that were out. Jamie's from Ohio. I think like four, but I, I think that is how it went through. Yeah. They were the only ones yeah. going to be allowed to grow it and sell it. Like, yeah. fuck, fuck, fuck you. Monopoly. That is not legal weed. That is you being a cunt. That's monopoly. Yeah, that's and, crazy. You know, it, yeah, because, you know, you had like people that got those uh, licenses or permits or whatever that had no knowledge on 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 the cannabis culture or or business 
how to cultivate and and how to run retail stores or any of that. They didn't have any of that knowledge. And, you know, they'll usually give it to an insider because they know how much money they stand to make. Yeah. Like that. That's like if there was just one distribution center. Right. And everybody has to go through that distribution center. How much money does that distribution center make? Because you got to pay for your shit to go there. And then, you know, who knows if it well, you know, if it passes because, you know, as a cultivator, what you did. So you'll know it'll pass because it's clean, but you still got to pay that fee every time. And it's got to go through them. Fortunately, here in California, you know, they've allowed people to have distribution licenses so that there's not one distribution center because that would be a, a monopoly for sure. And that's what they wanted to supposedly, you know, the lobbyists that, that put 64 together were trying to stop it from being a monopoly and uh, corporations coming in and taking over and stuff like that, you know. So, so interesting because pot is such a non-corporate drug, you know, it's such a non-corporate thing. That these corporations were trying to get a a, a grip yeah. on weed, it just it seemed it seemed obscene, you know. Yeah. It seemed it seemed disgusting. Yeah, you know? it's it's a little out of place, you know. A lot out of place, right? You, you know, because you, <clears throat> you you think about where it comes from, and it's been outlaw for so long. It's kind of like you know the way al alcohol was for for so long, but, way longer than alcohol. But, but though, it's been demonized longer. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. And now, you know, you have people trying to come in and throw money into it. And, and they got, you know, and some of these guys don't realize it's it's not just about the money into it. You got to do the diligence on what this business is. You can't cut corners on the cultivation. You know, you can't cut corners on quality because people, you know, they're they're um, There's more information out there. Yeah. You know, so people know you're, even if they're not a connoisseur. As a consumer, you know, they can they can read about shit. They can learn about stuff. So if you're getting over on them or if you're putting some shit quality product out there, I mean, people are going to know. And, and all that money that these guys put into to trying to get into the cannabis business, they're just throwing it into the fire. Yeah. Some of them will come out of it. You know, they'll partner up with brands that exist and, and people that have knowledge. But, you know, it's it's. The corporations that come in in the next five years, it's, it's going to be it's going to be interesting because I do think that it's set up for them to come in. The taxes are so high right now for the consumer and for the cultivator and for the retail shop that you got to survive this wash right now that's happening in order to still be, you know, doing business when the corporate structure comes in, because please believe they're going to lobby so that those taxes come down because the margins are not right, you know, as 40% taxes. Is that what it is now? It was yeah, 39 in Denver, right? Yeah, but in is here in California, it's, you know, 40%. And but to the consumer, the consumer is like, who gives a fuck? You know, get, well, if I could just pull in and get some weed real they quick. They should give a fuck. They should, but in comparison to alcohol, like how much yeah. it costs if you go out for a night for some drinks. Yeah. It costs way more. You get high for a month on yeah. what it takes to get Pretty much. a few drinks in a night. It, depending where you go, those fucking yeah. drinks are even double. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And with less alcohol. <laughs> well, the other thing is that these companies, they don't understand the culture. 
It's a different culture. You can't bullshit us. Like yeah. you can't bullshit us with marketing and advertising. That shit is not going to no. work. You can't have like the most interesting man in the world selling weed. Stay, no. stay thirsty, my friends. No, like, that can- <laughs> no, that ain't going to work. You got to get somebody like Michael Phelps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, man, for right, Michael right? Phelps, for man. Real. I would buy weed from Michael Phelps. How funny was that that he got in trouble for that? You know what I find it funny is how how um you know they they put these uh, stereotypes on stoners for so long like that we're lazy unproductive and all that stuff. This guy's one of the most decorated Olympians in the history. You know what I mean? What has he got? Like fifteen gold fucking Something medals? Preposterous. Yeah, <laughs> Mister Big Lungs. That's what we call him. Mr. Big Lungs. <laughs> that guy probably could take a rip on a bong. Think about it. Oh, my God. I mean, shit. Right? He had probably his crazy capacity. He there it is. probably snap a two-gram bowl, this guy. Who was the person who ratted him out? Some yeah, low... Some kid. Some kid? Yeah. Some, yeah. some yeah. dirt Little dickhead. What a piece of shit. Yeah. Imagine just going to a party, trying to have a good time. Some kid's there with his phone. <laughs> That's social network for you, though. They want to go viral, so they'll, they'll get you in that moment where, you know, you're supposed to be a friend. But that was like before a lot of that shit was happening. Like, what year was that? If, let's guess. What year was that? 12? 2012? Well, before, yeah, before, uh, let's just say before, you know, uh, Instagram kicked off. But yeah. there was still YouTube and Twitter. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to put somebody on blast or you wanted to have a viral video, YouTube has been there for a long time. Yeah. Twitter was like 2007, right? Wasn't I, it? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I think when was Michael when was Michael Phelps when did he get in trouble I'm looking it's I I'm seeing different stuff so I saw a, a picture of it on YouTube from 2009 so that means it would have been in 2008 Olympics but oh that seems that makes sense like it was a long time ago yeah that makes sense though because then he came back right yeah he retired and then he came back well I think he was suspended I think it was suspended. Yeah, 2009 is when he got caught. And then so, uh, and then he had to, you know, do the suspension, and he came back and got some more medals. <laughs> like, ha-ha, fuck you, right? I love that. Was he suspended because of the weed? Yeah. Oh. Well, you know, hey, listen, on, on a, in a lot of places, it's still a, on a, a banned substance list. Oh, yeah, you know? Texas. Texas is real bad. February, two thousand. well, 2009. He was only 23. Apologize for he, an incident where he's caught on camera at a party <laughs> smoking a bong that was allegedly marijuana. <laughs> he should, you know, he shouldn't have apologized for Fuck that. He shouldn't you. have had to have apologized for that. Thing is, that they have those guys bent over a box because they're all just trying to get that sponsorship money, right? Because yeah, you have to be squeaky clean if you want to be on the Wheaties box. Yeah, you can't if you're be, an Olympian, yeah. They're not going to put Cypress Hill on the Wheaties box no. just yet. Wouldn't that be great, though? But take the, the T-H out and add an E and put a D and I-E-S at the end. Let's go. Wheaties. Yeah. I don't know, man. You guys were so far ahead of the curve, though. You know, I mean, you you were, you were had weed songs. Like, when? Like, what year? That was, uh, the, the first album was in 91. And we started writing for that album probably... Uh, four years prior wow and uh you know the weed songs those came about because we were weed heads you know we just fuck it let's be ourselves right it's a different thing though for people that were were fans Uh, because uh i when i was listening to you i was uh just getting ready to move from boston to new york and uh back then you would hear about 
new hip hop bands from like friends. Yeah. Like you did like there yeah. was, there it was, was no word way. of mouth. Yeah, yeah, man. For sure. I would hear about it. Like somebody that I, I think somebody I worked out with had it and I was like, what the fuck is this? And they were like, that's Cypress Hill. I was like, damn. Yeah, we were trying to be different, you know, um, not sound like a typical West Coast, you know, group. Right. Because a lot of a lot of West Coast groups at that point, you know, what the labels were looking for were NWA you know, types and, you know, things like that, like either, you know, gangster, West Coast gangster rap. They were looking for that or either the the Kid Frost Chicano type. Yeah. And we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to uh, foothold ourselves like that. You know, Muggs being from New York, he wanted to sort of blend both worlds, right? So, you know, we went with, with the East Coast type sound with LA, you know, type of slang mixed with, with East Coast slang. Mm. And so people, you know, they were like, where the fuck are these guys from? And, and people thought we were from Cypress Hill, New York, because there's a Cypress Hill oh. down there. And, uh, you know, people just didn't really know at first because we were one of the first groups that didn't put our images on any of our first, um, you know, any of our singles or, or our art covers. We never did like the the shots like, you know, that, that, that were existing at that time where it's a clean shot of the group or the artist or whatever. Mm -hmm. We were always on some, you know, because we were metalheads too. You know, before the hip hop, we liked the obscure metal album. So we didn't, we were like, we're not going to put ourselves on the covers. We're just going to do these crazy obscure covers and make people, you know, try to guess who we are, be mysterious. Damn, we talk about longevity. I mean, you guys. You guys have been around a long fucking time and you've <laughs> crazy. never dropped off at all. It's crazy, you know. Um, we we didn't expect it. We didn't know how long our run would be. We just kept working, you know. We, we always had a strong work ethic. We were never the types just to sit around. We were always doing something, you know. Muggs is always making beats, um, you know. I'm always writing to something. I'm always into one project or another. So it's it was always just about keeping busy and... and that that uh, suited us well. It's crazy. Twenty eight years later, still banging it. <laughs> it's crazy when you say it. <laughs> Twenty eight years. Twenty eight years later from your Fun. first album, man. And, yeah. you, and again, you guys never dropped off for a second. Not once. You were always there. You have to be consistent in hip hop. You know, in, in music in general, especially like if if there's a time where radio stops playing your music, or you know, as MTV stopped playing music videos, and, and they went for more. Um, reality show type programming you gotta you gotta stick out there so for us it was you know constantly doing shows we didn't put out as many albums as we could have but we thought less was more you know mm. instead of like driving the music into your heart like a steak or something like that <laughs> we'd just you know let everything breathe for a while and mm. there was there was a time where you know we sort of let go of doing everything it was like a six-year period where we just kind of took off we we didn't we weren't away completely. We we're still doing like sporadic shows here and there to keep up the profile, but we weren't like touring and working on music. I was off fucking around uh, competing in paintball tournaments. At crap Wait, like really? That. Yeah. You get into paintball? <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. I had a team called stoned assassins and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it was competitive paintball at the time I was, you know, training uh, martial arts as I've done throughout my life. And uh, I was also playing competitive paintball. What and kind of martial arts are we doing? Shotokan. I started oh. off with Taekwondo and I got sort of, I mean, it's, it's like, it was, uh, it was, the dojo was cool, you know, and, and I was progressing quickly, 
but I sort of fell out with the master there with the Sifu or whatever. I can't remember what Sabo it is. Nim. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one of my partners who I grew up with, who was one of my partners in our Dr. Green Thumb um, brand and whatever, his father um, was a, was a, you know, sensei and, and his sensei and became my sensei. I went from Taekwondo to Shotokan and I started training with him. I mean, he had been in the dojo since he was five years old training with his father. So, you know, I came into that. It, it took, it took a little bit of uh, convincing for me to go from one thing to another because it's such a different style. Mm. Um, but, you know, I adapted to it and I liked it and it was um, very different, less flash but uh is very disciplined and and his father you know he was you know born in japan raised out there and he he you know their their shit is kind of different they go to 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 um martial arts universities and they get degrees in different martial arts so they can really? go and take like okay hapkido and jujitsu and shotokan and and all this and you know get their their degrees, you know, they work their way up in the belt system and all that stuff, but they become teachers through, through that university, I guess. That's and, fascinating. And uh, yeah, his his father was one of the guys in one of the federations that uh, he's one of the three or four senseis that have to come in and give you the black belt when you actually get it. Ah. Yeah. It, uh, what was it? Uh, SKFA or something like. That. I got. You know, Shotokan I'm for Karate Federation. Something like yeah, that. something like that. <clears throat> Yeah, so man. you could imagine when Leota Machida came on the scene, you know, <laughs> we were like, yeah, someone representing the style that, you know, we were training under. Anyway. Yeah, a lot of people got excited when he came about. He was really the first guy to legitimize karate in the modern era of mixed martial arts. He showed, yeah. like, if you could do all those other things, if you could stuff takedowns and you, you knew submissions and all those things on top of that. You like, could live. Yeah, you could, and you could do it in a weird way that people didn't really understand his timing. Yeah. You know, Wonder Boy Thompson's similar to that, too. It's got a weird timing. Weird timing. It's yeah. it, it's you know, and then the feints with the hips. Mm -hmm. He was good with that oh, shit. Yeah. Like you know, he yeah. he would throw people off with that. And you know, we I just happened to go see his fight against Rashad Evans. Oh shit! And uh, man, I mean, it surprised all of us. I mean, we thought he would win, but we didn't know he would win in that fashion. I mean, yeah, he was something special. Yeah, you know, I mean, and he's doing. He's over at Bellator now, right? With his brother. His brother Chinzo's been uh, over there for a hmm. while. His brother's, a, I think his brother's a bantamweight or featherweight, one of those. But um, yeah, that the I think it's good to go from Taekwondo to uh, other styles because Taekwondo gives you a lot of dexterity. You learn yeah. how to move your legs easily. Yes, absolutely. It's a yeah. good foundation. Yeah, it's a good way to start off. It's yeah. good for little kids too. They get for sure. It, that doesn't you know? There's not a lot of head contact. The or coordination not as much. too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then when you learn, if you learn, if you really actually want to fight, you want to learn Muay Thai and all those other things. You have way quicker legs. Yeah. They just move better. Yeah. yeah. For me, you know, I, I was never good with the, all those flashy kick, kicks like that. So, you know. You're a big dude. Yeah. It was harder for me, Taekwondo. Like the Shotokan was definitely hard, but it was more suited for someone my It's a size. hard style. Shotokan's it, a hard style. It is, good man. good style. And he, you know, he when he was training us, he would not like let up. He'd, oh, be reals here. Let me go light on him. Nah. Everything I did like you know that, that that i did outside of music when i tried like for instance paintball when it went into paintball there was a price on my head every game <laughs> everybody wanted to give me extra shots of course so like if i got hit while i'm walking out i would get 10 
20 extra paintballs to my back. Oh. You know, and we'd give it right back to them. You know, in the very next game, when we played them guys again, we were making sure to give them that right back. But, so you got deep into this. Oh, yeah, I was, man. It, it's <laughs> addicting, man. I got to tell you, um, if there's any physical activity that is addicting, it is paintball because it's chess with guns. Yeah. Because it's so fast and so close. And you got to think of a strategy. You know, it's not all shooting straight way. It's all shooting angles and getting your guys to positions to get those guys out to keep moving up, to get their flag, wipe them out, and bring the f flag back. Now, are there restrictions on power, like the power yeah. of the guns? Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe... You can't shoot above three hundred psi. I think it's, <coughs> I think it's uh, the the highest you can shoot is maybe two eighty five, two ninety. At least at the time. I like, if you go balls out, if you wanted to get the ultimate paintball gun, what is that? Oh man, it's 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 hard because uh, we were using different guns at the time because it's it's like uh, each year a better gun comes out. Oh, the no. technology gets better, so you know. We were using it first when we started these these guns called Angels, and then we went over into uh, these other guns. Fuck, I can't remember the name of them, but they were light. I mean, the best thing is to have a light gun with, with the trigger that you can fan, see, because that's the technique to get it to shoot like a, like a Uzi, right? <laughs> You're not supposed to be able to pull the trigger and multiple balls come out with one pull. It's supposed to be that... The, the the gun shoots as fast as your 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 two fingers or three can toggle. So, if you get a rhythm, you could shoot that thing like a fucking Uzi, you know. And everybody has a different position, you know. Like mine, I was like one of the quarterbacks, which is the last three on the line. See, it's like a football field, right? You got the fifty. And there's obstacles at the 50 and in between, and it's mirrored on the other side. The quarterbacks play the back, and they shoot a whole bunch of paint so that the other guys that are the front and mid guys can get into these different positions to shoot the other guys out. So the guys in the back, we're shooting the most paint. So you have to use that fanning um, style. So you're using three fingers? Three fingers, because the, the trigger, where you're, where the, the, the base, where you're pulling the trigger you can fit three fingers there. Yeah, it's really for wow. two, but you could fit three. Yeah, this this was our team right here. <laughs> stoned Assassins stoned 07. Assassin. And we were always pretty stoned when we were playing. <laughs> Did that help? Yeah. I, the, 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 the furthest we went, we took third place in one tournament. Wow, you guys! Yeah. So this is crazy. Like you guys have these barriers and shit. Yeah, and these are all blow up barriers right here. It looks like a football field. Yeah, that that's what they would replicate, like a football soccer field, and uh, you know, you put all the these these obstacles up, these blow up obstacles, and uh, they're all just positions to to try to take to um, get a better angle on the other side. And, and what's so, the what's the ultimate goal to take everybody out? It's uh. You get points for taking the other side out, but you get the maximum points getting their flag and bringing it back to your side. Oh. And, you know, you get points for how many guys on your side that are still alive. So, you know, you would get 100% if all seven of your guys were alive. You killed all of them and brought their flag. Back. That ever happened? Oh, yeah. Damn, who are you playing? <laughs> uh, you know, are you guys crawling around the, and shit? The thing about paintball, right, is that let's just say there's six tiers Right there's the pros, there's the semi pros, there's the amateurs, there's the novice, there's the rookie, and uh, each 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 tier had at least two hundred teams competing in this. 
Wow. Per tournament. And these guys, back in that time, I don't know how how it is now because I haven't competed in a long time, but they would do five tournaments a year. One would be in Huntington Beach, the biggest one, and it was awesome. They would throw it, you know, right next to a surfing tournament. So, like, it would just be cross people crossing up watching the surfers and then come and watching the paintball. Then it would hit to, you know, Boston and Florida and um, Las Vegas and one other one other place I can't remember. But we would do these tournaments. I, I was doing them for like four or five years. And the guy before me that was the, the ambassador was uh, one of the one of the Bee Gees. One of the what? Bee Gees, uh, the one who passed away first. Um, Barry Gibb? Was it Barry? No, he's the one that always wore the hat. Oh. Um, he was the shorter one. So he was a paintball. He fiend? was a paintball fiend like myself. <laughs> he he owned a store. He had a team. I think it was based out of uh, Florida, out of Miami, <laughs> and he would compete up until when he passed away. He was like the ambassador, and wow, I kind of is. Yeah, I came in and took his spot when Maurice. He, yeah. Maurice. Maurice Gibb. That's crazy. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow, you, you guys are armored the fuck up, huh? How yeah. fat? These things must sting. Oh, man. I mean, I'd leave with at least 20 paintball bruises, you know, per, you know, in one one sitting. And, you know, you're, you're, you look like a leopard coming, wow. coming off after that. You know who else was a big paintball enthusiast was William Shatner. Really? Yeah. He would hold these crazy tournaments like in Trekkie style. Where it's a scenario <laughs> game, meaning that, okay, here's the castle. I'm going to be in the castle right here. You guys got to siege the castle. And if you guys can come get me out of here, you guys win this round. And they would, through the three days, they'd set up different scenarios. Like, there you go. See <laughs> William Shackner playing paintball. This yeah. is crazy. I would have never guessed. But how does he run? He can't run. Well, no, he's like he, he, years old. he doesn't run. They they put him in a central place and oh. he'll shoot. Sometimes he would go out there, but. So he would just stay put? Yeah, he would stay put. <laughs> you would have to protect him. That's he, like old man paintball. He would fight Look too. He would fight too, but he would, he would, you know, they would be trying to protect him. Oh, that's so crazy. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I mean, there's a bunch of celebrities that, that paintballed, man. Will Smith was paintballing before he did iRobot. Really? He did that. He came down to the park where we would practice at. We we played w with him and his team. Um, but it was a scenario game. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, we, Makai Pfeiffer. I mean, you'd be surprised how many well, people. It looks like there. fun. I guess well, I shouldn't be surprised. You let off steam. Yeah. I how mean, many people on a team? On on a com a competition team, you have uh, you have eleven for the roster and seven play at a time, and you can you know switch guys out. But now it's different. Now they do like five man and three man teams. Mm. I don't know anything about the new style, but you know they they constantly call me back because I'm in better shape than I was when I played. I was a little bit heavier than. That's why I was at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't you know I wasn't running too fast then, but. You know, they, they always hit me, man. I'll always get hit on my DM on IG or Twitter like, hey, man, when you come back to the paintball field, I'm like, uh, when I get time, which is probably never, but. It seems like a, a big time suck. Loved it, man. I loved playing the game. It was so addicting. It was hard to pull away from it. I, I would even at times be coming home from, from a tour 
straight into a tournament. Like I'd get off the plane, I'd have somebody have my paintball shit ready, and boom, straight to the tournament. <laughs> Can't tell you how many times I was doing that. Really? Yeah, it's fucking crazy. It's it's funny when things get in your blood, right? They oh. get in your bones. Yeah, that got in my blood like martial arts did, because I was always like an enthusiast, like you know. For, for a long time you know and uh when i finally started training i was training like seven days a week man wow. i wouldn't give myself any time off because i wanted to learn fast <laughs> and i wanted to absorb it you know did you I, ever fuck with jujitsu no i i always wanted to but i never now? did You're i you know I, I thought about it and uh I, come I, on down I, the 10th planet man you I, fit right in i think i will you know, like a lot of people have asked me and invited me because they know, you know, I'm a UFC fan. I'm a mixed martial arts fan. I'm a boxing fan. You know, all that shit. I, you know, a couple of my cousins are, well, one of them was a champion professional boxer, which was Michael Carbajal and his nephew. He was, was your cousin? Yes. Yeah, Damn. Cousin. I met yeah. my, <clears throat> I met him one day at the comedy store. Yeah. Long time ago, man. Yeah, when he was uh, when he was a champ, he, he was, was a beast. He was a beast, and his uh, nephew is now now boxing, Keenan Carbajal. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, you know we're rooting for family right there. But it's from Arizona, right? Yeah, from AZ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've I've been invited to 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 you know come fuck with some jujitsu, and and I think I you know I think I will because <laughs> I mean you, you got to know it. I think I think you you know it's something that would benefit anyone from to know that yeah so that you don't actually you know get in a fight and have to hurt somebody bad or they hurt you you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. just choke them just choke them out <laughs> i saw everlast choke some guy out one night really? man it was the fucking because you know he 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 fucks around a little bit you know he knows people mm. that that teach jujitsu and they've taught him a couple things and <laughs> we're at the rainbow one night where we were holding court um just smoking like it's Amsterdam down there. And we were having a conversation and he kept hearing some dude across the cross uh, a couple tables over kept saying everlast this, everlast that. And he he yo money, say my name one more time. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "Everlast?" <laughs> <laughs> and he went back to talking to his people because he didn't think Everlast was going to come up and do nothing. Everlast went and walked over to this table, looked to his face, turned him around real quick, and started choking him the fuck out. <laughs> Say my name again, buddy. Say it. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, man. It, it, was, it was hilarious. But uh, yeah, man. Well, Gotta 10th be. Planet is downtown, right near where your place is. Yeah, yeah. So you, your studio or your setup, that's that's real close to 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, man. Just let me know. I'll set it I up. I will, man. You got to avoid any flat earth conversations that come up. Oh, I, you know. Just plug your ears and keep moving. I get those from <laughs> I get those from time to time, you know. I get People the flat need earth. to stay the fuck off of YouTube, man. <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. They get confused. Yeah. That's the, that's the craziest shit. Because yeah. I, I always argue like this about the flat earth, right? So, hey, listen, if we got a flat earth, there's an edge, right? And there's always thrill seekers looking to do something thrilling. And there's always a thrill seeker that fucks up and falls right off of that edge, right? So how many <clears throat> motherfuckers would be falling off the edge of the earth if we really had one? Oh, for sure. You yeah. know? There would be climbers. There'd be a bunch of dudes who would try to hang off the edge and take selfies. Think about it, right? Twelve people this year have died at the Grand Canyon. That's the Grand Canyon. Is that really that many? That many. Damn. So far in, in this year. And some people die of a heart attack there. 
because you know it's too much for them to be on that little bridge that they have there that that extends past the, the edge of a canyon. They they put in a a little bridgeway so that you, you can go and look down. People and, have heart attacks, doing and people that? have had heart attacks from that. <laughs> but the other guys are the ones trying to do selfies, oh. falling off fucking bridge and plummeting right so you gotta think man if we had if we had a flat earth how many people would be visiting the edge and falling <laughs> fuck off taking a selfie man there's no you know come on no doubt there'd be teams of people teams they would travel to flat earth and they would they would like rope we'd par- like, like like alex honnold would probably try to climb off the side we'd hear it on the news another person has died from falling off the edge of the earth yeah it would be 100 percent uh, that'd be our hundred. <laughs> the flat earth people would tell you though that the government guards that. Yeah, not they, Antarctica, they right? Yeah, you can't go near it, bro. Yeah, it's battleships. Well, there wouldn't be just one edge, though, right? That's true. There but could, they didn't think that through. Yeah, no, there'd no. be several edges if we're flat. <laughs> yeah, but see, you gotta have that YouTube mentality. You gotta put your head in a little box, and leave it in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking turn the oven box on and stick the, your head in it. The government's blocking the edge, man. You can't get near it. Yeah, we're, it's like we're living in a, uh, a dome. Mm. You know, that's that's, that's the, the other theory. one. Yeah, the dome. The dome theory. Yeah, there's no space. Space is fake. Uh, fuck, man. <laughs> people, people smoke too much. People want to believe in some crazy <laughs> shit. Yeah. You know? I wonder how much of them are stoners. Like most of them, right? <laughs> how many of them are microdosing? Oh, could. Yeah, probably. Cause, you know, because that's a thing now. Everybody's like mm-hmm. fucking microdosing right now. And it's not bad for you. They, they say it's actually, you know, kind of good for you. But Ron White's doing it. But, Ron White microdoses uh, psilocybin every yeah. day. He yeah, goes, well, I, I never felt better in my life. And they like to talk when they're microdosing. Yeah, especially <laughs> psilocybin. You just have these ideas. That's the thing. You have ideas and your mind becomes open to shit that normally, you know, you're closed off to, obviously, you know? Yeah. But, you know. I think they think that the earth is a disc. I think that's what I've heard recently. They think it's a disc. A disc. Some sort of a floating disc. Hmm. And then we live in the firmament or something like that. There's like some sort of a cover over the top of the disc. And that's what the, here it is. What is this, Jamie? It's the cruise. (laughs) Huh? The cruise next year that they're at. The Flat Earth Cruise? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Is the that real? So Best the, adventure yet. They're going to get to the fucking glaciers, and they're going to go, I told you, the wall. The Flat Earth Cruise. I hope they jump out and get eaten by polar bears. That's the funniest shit. <laughs> it has to use, like, GPS to get around, so. I mean. Good luck, good luck with that. You know, how many scientists do they have on their side? Uh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's the funniest shit no man. it's fucking ridiculous there's there's a there's gigantic satellites that take huge high resolution photos of the earth every 10 seconds from yeah. orbit from thousands of miles out those are doctored yeah it's just the whole thing is so fucking stupid of all the shit to believe in like to invest any energy in that like why would someone lie about the shape of the earth that's the dumbest part you, about you it. want to know what i think is is um before um the internet and all these different platforms where you can get information they you know our government and other governments could debunk any information on ufos anything because they you know there wasn't like the wide communication that, that exists now yeah. right so i think now they put in people who are saying this crazy wild way out shit so that people are that are really trying to expose truth on certain things they get looked at as yeah. whack jobs like the rest of those that are trying to say, oh, well, flat earth or we're on a disc or we're in a globe or blah, blah, blah. 
you the know, government spying on you. They'll throw all that together. The yeah. government is spying on you. Yeah, they are. That is for sure. I no, mean, they really are. That it's it's you know since George Bush Jr. was president, <laughs> they've been listening to our phone calls. I mean, that's a fact. I mean, that was one of the the things they enacted with the Homeland Security that they mm -hmm. can record every American's call and. You know, whatever conversation mentioned certain keywords, as we were saying earlier, they would, you know, they would get shuffled off to a certain department and those guys were red flagged and looked at. And that still happens today. To, still to this day. You don't need a warrant. They can just listen. I mean, I'll tell you this, right? There was, uh, I've been traveling, what, 20, 20 some odd years at, at this point where um, when I when I was coming back into to the United States for a long time, I would not get um, randomly checked or anything like that. They just let us go by. And I, I made a few posts somewhere, you know, with an abundant amount of cannabis. Right. And right after that <laughs> post, each time I came back into the United States, they sent me into secondary for a search. And I started asking like, hey, um, I've been traveling for X amount of years now. Every, I've noticed that the last four times that I've come back from another country, you guys are randomly, you know, checking my bags now. What's the deal? Am I red flagged? What's going on with my passport? Um, well, you know, we're, I'm not really allowed to tell you this, but I mean, have you been, what kind of postings have you made on your social networks? Really? Yeah, and I said, okay, say no more. And wow. I already knew what it was because I had put like, you know, a, a post with like four, five, six pounds in it. <laughs> <laughs> what does five pounds of weed even look like? It's a it's lot. It's so light. <laughs> That's like giant pillows filled with weed. Yeah. So, you know, right then and there, I knew, you know, from that reaction that he had that anybody with any sort of um, that's involved in entertainment, music, athlete, you know, whatever, actor, actress, they're watching all of our shit. Oh, for sure. They're listening and they're watching. <coughs> well, so, especially someone like you who's been at the forefront of pushing cannabis legalization and always talked about it openly, flagrantly, even when it was a Schedule One substance. Oh, yeah. Everywhere, you know. Yeah. When it, did you get a medical card? What I, year? The, the year that it was available. <laughs> <laughs> the first year it was available. Was that like 95 or something? 94? Yeah. I think I got my from, from Dr. Eidelman. He was like one of the- Dr. Eidelman hooked me up too. Yeah. All right. We're Eidelman <laughs> brothers. All right. A lot of us I are. To, I used to go to him even when it was way more expensive because I'm like, that yes. guy's an OG. Yeah. He, hey, bro. He, like he told me, he goes, my God. Because I, I lost track of him for a minute, you know, and uh, when I went back, to get a renewal some years back and he's lewis you've you've been with me a long time i mean is it what it looks like is that you're patient number four whoa number four on his first because he keeps crazy. a list of all his patients i guess you know yeah. and apparently i was number four yeah, even though there was doctors out here i'd always go travel to see him in hollywood just out of respect yeah and uh he always had these he had like OG stoners in the waiting room. Oh yeah, just people that were just like barely holding on to reality. <laughs> oh yeah, he had a, he had all sorts. He had the hippies. He had the new you know mm -hmm. new gens, hip hop. 
people like he had vitamin drips and shit too all kinds of weird stuff in his office yeah he would yeah he would try to sell you on some some different technology anytime you can this <laughs> this will help you stop smoking cigarettes well i don't uh, smoke cigarettes oh yeah not. he had like a thing that he put on your ear like a little <laughs> yeah, electrical thing little electrode like, yeah they gave one to red band it didn't work <laughs> yeah hey, you know you gotta try something right yeah it was like a battery powered thing right It'd give a little charge to your ear that yeah. somehow another supposed to stop you from smoking cigarettes like yeah i didn't uh, get it i didn't smoke cigarettes so i was like i don't smoke cigarettes did stop. you ever get your lungs checked out from all those years of weed smoking yeah i mean i you know i get physicals and stuff like that and uh you know occasionally i'll have my lungs checked and they tell me they're great <laughs> isn't that amazing it's crazy you know because i think if if you keep active you know like you train and 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 uh a lot of us train now like uh, this generation they're not like lazy stoners they don't just yeah sit back and do nothing there still are those but you know i i don't think it has the the same carcinogens as you know people expected you it know doesn't. like cigarette it doesn't and so you know you might look <laughs> like at someone's lungs who, who who smokes cigarettes and and you might see something there and like hey you need to you know slow the fuck down over here but in in every time that i've had my lungs checked or whatever for whatever whether i've you know gotten sick or whatever they're, they're always telling me lungs are in good shape and it's a funny thing because you know in i think in 1987 you know i was 17 and i was gang banging i got shot and you know the i got hit by a 22 and and it as hollow points do it um it it broke into three three pieces the hollow point and one of them punctured my my lung on my left side and uh you know they were telling me uh well you know um do you smoke um, no nah, i don't really smoke because i didn't smoke cigarettes i smoked weed but i wasn't gonna divulge that at the time i was 17 and you know and uh they said well you know well that's good because you'll never smoke again it was like you, you they punctured your lung and blah 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 they thought i was gonna have to work off one lung but in the three days you know they were able to get the blood out of the lung and i was able to get it back you know through the exercises they told me you know to get it back to its regular size and i've never had a problem since then knock on Did they wood. take the piece of metal out no i still got the three pieces that's like when i go do my physicals and they do the you know the mri the mris and the x-rays and all that the doctors you know sometimes they forget because they see so many patients it's, mr freeze um these appeared to be bullet fragments what what is that well, you just said it, Doctor Bullet Frank. <laughs> You've seen him a dozen times, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I was very lucky. I was very lucky because it, you know, punctured my lung, and then two of the pieces—one was by the heart, and one was by my spine. But I was at uh, Martin Luther King Hospital in Linwood, and we call that place Killer King because you go in there for something small and end up dying or come out, you know, gimped out or something. <sighs> So, you know, I wasn't going to allow them to try and get to those bullets or those fragments. To open you up? Yeah, no, no, no. Because, you know, it, they didn't have a great success rate. What kind of lung exercise do they give you? Try to pump your lungs back up. They give you this breathing apparatus that has like a ball in it, right? And it has two lines. And, you know, the, it's the, the first line you're trying to, they're telling you every day for five minutes, to 10 minutes to blow that you know not all in one shot but like to keep practicing getting the ball up there 
and that will in, help inflate the lung and get it back. So I had to do that for probably like three weeks. And, uh, you know, and the puncture wound, it healed itself pretty much. And uh, and the pieces are still in your lung? Not in the lung. No, it's it, it went past the lung. It, oh. it shot past the lung. So, you know, it's uh, I got a piece up here and one off to the it? side in the back. Well, when it's really cold due to the 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 nerve damage i'll get like stinging like you know like when you're when your hand falls asleep the mm. little needles the yeah i'll get that here and then and then back here where it entered they oh. had to they had to cut right in between a rib here to stick the tube in to put the the hose into the lung to get the blood out of the lung damn yeah i was you know i was living crazy before I got into the music. The music saved my life, pretty much. Really? Yeah. How long were you gangbanging for? <sighs> for for some years, you know, I started I started young. Um I was probably thirteen years old. Whoa. Gangbanging and <laughs> and uh I got out of it probably I didn't necessarily get out, but I changed up what I was doing. Cause you don't never really get out per se, unless they jump you out. <laughs> and, you know, I was too into it to to be jumped out like that you know what mm -hmm. i mean that wasn't something i was going to do because you know for as negative as it was it taught me a lot um so my my boys that i you know ran with they understood i was trying to do something different you know i made a choice to try the music and and leave that shit alone because there there was no way that you do both if you do both, you see the results of that, what's happening today with a lot of cats. You know what I mean? Yeah. That they try to ride the line, be professional and be in the music, but they're still kind of in this world over here. And when it bleeds in, one bleeds into the other, it, you know, it fucks everything up, you know? And uh, so I chose, you know, I was going to do music and just talk about those life experiences and whatnot. And that was probably at um, 18 that uh, I started taking on the music and uh, that's that's where it went you know like when you said you learned a lot from it like what did you learn from it well you know your street you know there's there's common sense and then there's common sense on the streets and mm -hmm. then there's being aware and looking out and you know not being a doormat and uh, just it's it's a whole different type of schooling when you're gang banging you know it's the way you uh, carry yourself the way you communicate with someone and know whether they're disrespecting you or not and how you deal with that disrespect, which is, you know, a whole different world in the gangbang shit. But it's uh, it's a different kind of education. You know, mm -hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't take it back. Some of the things I would, you know, I definitely regretted while I was doing it for sure. But um, it made me see things from from a different perspective, you know, and and why you know things are the way they are in gangs and stuff like that from lack lack of opportunities you know for for these kids to be doing something you know because not everybody's good at sports you know but there has to be other opportunities other that other than that to get kids interested in doing something else because falling into the gangs it's it's easy if if you don't have a good home life at home the guys on the street are your second family and mm -hmm. they eventually become your first family. You know what I mean? And if you don't have a father figure at home, one of the guys in the gang, you know, becomes your mentor. He could become like the guy you look up to as like your father figure, you know, there's that. And then 
you know, again, there's not enough programs out there to keep people into doing something different than falling into that. And then sometimes, you know, it just, it's a matter of, you know, you growing up in this neighborhood. If you have to walk down that street and they approach you and say, hey, you live in this hood, you got to be with us. If you don't, we're going to make it hard for you. So there's that peer pressure. And then mm. there's the legacy shit. Like, so if my father was a gangster in this gang and he still lives in this neighborhood, pressure's on for me eventually to take up where father left off, mm. you know, and uh, it's it's all those things. And then some people just are thrill seekers and they choose it and have nothing, you know, in common with none of that. They just choose it for some people, too. It's so appealing to have somewhere that you belong. Right. And, and that's the thing, because if you don't feel like you, you belong in your school or you don't belong with your in your family <laughs> and, and that that shit can mm. totally take hold and, and you end up there. You know, fortunately, I had good friends that weren't gangbangers, you know, that they had talent for music, which is Muggs and Sen and Sen's brother Mello. You know, they were, you know, I did music as a hobby, you know, before I got into gangs and, and they got me back into the music because they, they recognized something in me and said, hey, we want you to come back where we got these opportunities over here. Come join us. Did you always have that style? No, I didn't. When know. did you develop that? Once we started working on our Cypress Hill demos, um, Muggs came to me and said, hey, man, you got to do something. You got to do something different. Otherwise, you're going to write for Sen. Because Sen had a good voice. His shit was locked in. And my voice, I was rapping in a voice similar to the one I'm talking. And although the rhymes were good, it didn't cut through on the style, like on, on you know, on the beats. It, it just sounded like, you know, some regular shit. So, you know, I didn't want to be someone's writer. You know, I wanted right. to write for myself. So, you know, I, there was a guy that we used to listen to um, coming up. His name was Ram LZ. He was on this uh, record called Wild Style, and he was in the movie. He was this uh, rapper who was very uh, obscure, but he was an artist, too, you know, like a graffiti artist but then also an, an artist artist you know but he was also a rapper and what he would do is he'd rap in a regular style like his talking voice this is the brother they call the ram l he had a deep voice like that and then he would flip right in the middle take it up town to cypress hill with the shotgun blah, 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 like that and you know we were always freaking out on that he had two styles so I tried throwing my voice in that sort of similar style and it ended up sticking. I didn't really like, I didn't think anybody was going to like it. I thought they were <laughs> going to be like, get the fuck out of here with that. But they ended up liking it. And uh, I think the first song that um, came about in that style was uh, the song Real Estate off our first album. It's, uh, you know, that was where I tried it the first time. They liked it. So then Kill a Man came next and I tried yeah. that song in that style and then Hand on the Pump and it just became a flow after that. And I really did not feel it at first. I was like, fuck, I can't believe they got me rapping in this voice. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 took, it took a minute to get used to that, you know, like doing it live. Because, you know, I had a tendency we as as rappers, you know, that don't know because there's no school for this unless you have somebody who's done it and they teach you, OK, this is what the get down is. And we didn't have that, really. It was all hands on learning. 
I, you know, for the first few years, man, I was trying to do the voice and I'd end up, you know, getting overhyped because the crowd is hype and I'd start yelling the verses instead of like rapping them like on the record. I'd throw my voice out. My voice would get scratchy. I'd be sounding like Buster Rhymes and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it took me five years to actually harness how to actually do the shows with this voice. And I had to go to this opera singer um, coach. Really? She, uh, her name was something Elizabeth Sabine or something like that. She trained a lot of folks, but she, she, she her shit was like to teach you the operatic way of, of singing, which is from the diaphragm, tighten the stomach, take little breaths, but those little breaths make your lungs expand, you know, a lot. And it's less projection from your throat and more from the bottom. And she taught me that technique and I never went hoarse again after that. I like would, you know, people often compliment me on, you know, sounding so close to how the records are. There's once in a while where I might get excited and start saying it louder than it might be but i'm always sort of right there and i gotta you know i gotta give all props to her because if she hadn't showed me that technique i'd probably still be yelling and screaming my shit out <laughs> walking up my voice you know yeah, that brings up an interesting point is this her yeah she's teaching yeah. somebody oh, how to sing heavy metal right here yeah no way let me hear oh, we can't play this on youtube we'll get kicked oh, right, off yeah. youtube and she was a, and she was an opera singer at one time wow but she went on to teach people the technique no kidding man that is wild. <laughs> <clears throat> See, because if you try to keep your breath and, and and sustain a long note like that from your chest, you won't sustain that l note long enough. But if you tighten so up. Doing it from your diaphragm? Yeah, if you tighten oh. up almost. It's almost <laughs> like you if you're going to take a shit. Instead of from the throat, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, like it, it, it allows you, it allows your lungs to expand while you're breathing mm. through from your diaphragm. So that's what she taught a lot of singers. And it's a, a another method is to cheat the word, like pronounce it. You know, like you're kind of like it's it's like what these mumble rappers do when they they pronounce the word and they kind of mumble it and mm -hmm. they sort of cheat it. You know what the word is, but they didn't pronounce it all the way. Right. It, so so in other words if she's gonna you were gonna sing the line come he come with me you'd, it, so it sounds a little bit cleaner you'd say gum with me but in the way you would say it is more with a g but it's so tucked in that you hear come with me mm. and it's just a cheating way of saying it to get the line a little bit cleaner and and fucking uh you know in the breath and she taught me all that shit and and, and it worked for rap i didn't know if it would because I mean, it was it's she primarily taught singers. I was probably the first rapper that she taught this technique to, and it stuck, man. How'd you find her? Um, one of one of my friends had heard of her, you know, because I mean, in the in the industry, you meet, you know, you become friends with other, you know, um, your peers and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and you know, I I knew a couple singers, and they 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 were, you know, noting my problem is just you know screaming my verses and coming back with the raspy voice so they were like here why don't you try this person right here this person taught or or gave this technique to so and so and it was another singer i can't remember but um 
I, I thought, well, you know, what have I got to lose? I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But maybe I learned something from it that I could use somewhere else. Right. And fuck, she she taught me the, the warm up. She taught me, uh, you know, the certain words that you can cheat to, to you know, for for certain breath control purposes, because the way you pronounce certain things, you know, sort of add to that. And just the, the tightening of the diaphragm, man. Like if, if I hadn't learned that, it would have took me a lot longer to do the shows the way that I can do them now. So do you warm up before shows? I don't necessarily need to. Like from the first song on, my, my voice like gets in. Like the first few bars, it, it warms up right then and there. And uh, it's not really like singing where I got to sustain notes and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I don't have to do those same kind of warm-ups. If I was going to sing some shit, yes, I would definitely have to get my, you know, get the pitch right and the throat warmed up to to do those different, you know, melodies or whatever the hell. But fortunately, I don't sing. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole rap world has always been fascinating to me. Like how someone gets in. Like how do you get started? Are there open mics? Like what? Yeah, back in the day, man, they, someone had to be the guy endorsing you, you know, like mm -hmm. saying to, you know, these guys over here, hey, man, listen to this these artists right or this artist right here they're the new shit they're going to be the one and then you would have to do a couple showcases and stuff like that and you know win some people over i mean we we definitely did uh our share of showcases in the beginning but we were getting passed on left and right because you know people thought you know what are they talking about with this cannabis shit <laughs> <laughs> and we and we didn't sound like a, a west coast group you know because we were trying to sell our shit to west coast labels here and they did not get us it wasn't until you know um mugs had had you know he'd previously been in a group called 73 and he had worked with these guys called the rhyme syndicate which was ice t's guys so he kind of you know he was the guy that people knew and then um send dog's brother mellow man ace eventually would get in the door and so people started hearing about us through you know through more mugs than mellow metal mellow didn't really do shit for us you know all all truth told but mugs you know they kept hearing about a group that he was forming outside of 783 which came to be cypress hill and so you know the guys uh that worked on him worked with him on uh, the 783 records which was joe nicolo of of rough house records you know he wanted to sign whatever mugs was doing and you know he eventually ended up signing us um, and they had a distribution deal with uh, with Sony Music. So, you know, we, you know, put out our records to Rough House Columbia or Rough House Sony, something like that. And that's how we got put on, you know. And, and again, it had to be word of mouth because if nobody heard of, you, heard of you, you had to have some really fucking dope music for them to even, like, consider you. If you didn't have, like, someone backing you, it was tough. You know, you had to have someone come speak on your behalf and say, hey, these guys are the new new shit. And and uh, fortunately for us, once we put out our snippet tape, like when Sony put out our snippet tape, guys like EPMD. Right. And they were one of our favorite groups in the world, man. They were the top five for Cypress. So there was, you know, Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, EPMD. I love EPMD. Yeah. Fuck. They were the shit. And uh, those were the guys that took our snippet tape. And they were showing 
our snippet tape to other rappers like hey guys look at these new fucking guys because you know buster rhyme told me this story yo i've yo son i heard your shit from epmd <laughs> way back in the day they was playing it for uh public enemy and i just happened to be in the room and what and you know ice cube when we met him for the first time you know um and we had our ups and downs with him but he's one of my homies um he he told me, yeah, man, the first time I heard of y'all was through EPMD. They, we was on tour, was doing the show, and they came that's in with y'all taping. That's how I heard of y'all. And, and you know, they they were like our first street team, man. Fucking EPMD, wow. our, fav our favorite, one of our top three favorite groups was out there, like, with our snippet tape, telling people, hey, these guys are the new shit. Are and they still together? Uh, they, do, they do stuff occasionally, but uh, they, I think they do more work, you know, individually now. I know Eric Sermon is putting out a, a record right now. He was just promoting it on on uh, some radio show. And, uh, I mean, those guys still active, stay active. I mean, he's a producer, so he's always making music. But as a rapper, you know, they don't put out as much stuff as they used to. But, yeah, they're still active. You know who I miss? Cool G Rap. Cool G Rap. I still he, bust out. Hey, a lot of guys don't have a style if he doesn't. You know, if he had never come out. Uh, yeah. So many people were influenced by him. Yeah. Bad motherfucker. A lot of people forgot about him. A man. lot of people forgot about him. And he was one of the baddest dudes. I mean, a lot of people, you know, would talk about Big Daddy Kane mm -hmm. and Rakim. Sure. But you couldn't talk about them without talking about Cool G Rap because he was like one of those guys. Like spitting mad verses man like his bar work was incredible yeah he was incredible i still listen to that song cock blocking yeah every now and then i'll throw yeah. that on <laughs> and i gotta tell you you know like if if you hear songs that he does today he is still fucking current like his he's still got that style that that cuts through like you know some of the older artists they they sort of lose the style that mm -hmm. that uh, people love and they don't know how to transition into you know what their style would be right now you know like updating whatever that style is mm -hmm. you know a lot of a lot of the older artists had troubles doing that you know but my man Coogee rap not a fucking Ill street problem. blues Ill, he's still ill <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah still he was Ill. fantastic yeah yeah i always got confused why he didn't get bigger i didn't get it I was like, this guy's so good. You know, I think it was it, it was just the wave that came after him. Mm. You know, it's 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 like uh he was such an underground force. And if you were an underground force, you know, you had to make a, a, a conscious decision whether, okay, I'm gonna go main if I go mainstream, I'm gonna lose these hardcore fans. I might gain, mm. you know, these mainstream fans, but how long are they gonna stay with me as opposed to these core fans that, that you know that that they're but with his style he couldn't just keep them because like I, I thought he could I, a lot I, of guys kept them right you, you want to know something i think it was due to um you know the record company not wanting to take the chance because as mm. an artist you want everybody to hear your shit right you know for us we didn't play those games we said fuck it you know if if we felt it was the right look for us we were going to take it you know, no matter what anybody thought, you know, and uh, again, you face scrutiny for shit like that. But in the end, you know, if you didn't play yourself, people remember that, yeah. you know, and we said, fuck it. We're going to take our music mainstream, even though that was not our intent. You know, we always meant ourselves to be a more underground group, but insane in the brain didn't allow that uh, it, 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 it 
propelled us, you know? Yeah. So we were like, okay, well, we're going to take our underground asses up into this mainstream and show them how we do it. And it, it kicked the door open for a lot of un other underground acts to go into the mainstream. And we proved that if you do it right and if you stay on your game and if you keep working and, and, and stay present and put out quality music, that you can sustain those those mainstream fans that you gain right there and the core yeah you guys sustained so well that people covered your shit yeah like rage that rage was against awesome the machine when they covered pistol grip pump on my left at all times holy shit what one of my favorite bands zach de la rocha yelling that yeah that that shit was awesome i he, mean he took a, a a totally different take on it but like yeah. a cover, but it was it was a cover, but it was his take. Yeah, it was badass. It, it was one of my favorites, man. You know, and it was an honor to me because you know, like I was really good friends with them to begin with. I saw them come out the gate before they exploded and became Rage Against the Machine, mm -hmm. and so for them to cover one of our songs, we were like, man, fuck yeah, you know, because they they, they helped us get better. You know, there was a lot of groups that we looked to for influence, even if they were doing different style of music. Like Public Enemy was an influence to us. Rage Against the Machine was an inspiration to us to like push the envelope a little bit more on what we were doing. Not necessarily like how they were, because they had their own sound, just like we had our own sound. So they made us push, you know, and groups like that made us better. So when we heard this guy fucking doing or this band doing a cover and then they asked us to come play this song with them <laughs> which awesome. which would be their last night as rage against the machine for a long time this was like their last show right here wow we got to do that with them that must have been amazing and i was wearing a dad hat before dad hats were cool <laughs> <laughs> i will not wear one right now ever <laughs> i don't know what i was thinking but fuck it <laughs> that's hilarious that's hilarious no nah, it was a fun show man i went into the mosh pit oh did you yeah, really before that song before they called us up for that song for most of their set i was in the mosh pit and there was U U usc uh <laughs> front lineman down there wrecking shop oh, in the no. mosh pit bro <laughs> i was in there with them they were protecting me i was like oh shit be real you're up in i'm like yep yeah. and we were hilarious. wrecking shop together it was it was awesome there's a video of dana white in a mosh pit once I don't know what the fuck he was thinking. He must have been drunk. <laughs> he jumped in the mosh pit like years ago. He's, he's a big dude, though. He's a big dude. He's jumping around there, moshing around. Yeah, I dated a girl who got KO'd in the mosh pit once. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, it, it's it's crazy, man. I, I used to go into a lot of different mosh pits. And there he's in the rage mosh pit. Yeah. The but rage. most of it is safe, but every now and then you run into a dickhead. I'll right? tell you, man, the, the, the craziest mosh pits I, you know that I saw... Well, the craziest mosh pits I've gone into, there was a Limp Bizkit mosh pit that was crazy, and but the craziest was, was the Rage mosh pit. But the ones that I've seen from outside of it, not being in it, that were crazy was there was a Soundgarden mosh pit. That Soundgarden? Seen, yeah, at, at Lollapalooza early on. It was uh, when they had Bad Motorfinger out. Oh. oh, man. That fucking mosh pit was like a whirlpool of chaos, bro. <laughs> I, I was loving it. And I was on mushrooms watching this shit. So it was fucking amazing. And uh, then and then a Slayer mosh pit, man. Their fucking shit is brutal. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. just the pace the, the, of Slayer. It's crazy. But I got to tell you, since joining Prophets of Rage and us, you know, when we tour Europe and stuff like that, and we do a combination of, you know, 
uh, Rage Against the Machine songs, Public Enemy and Cypress Hill, along with our our own material, the mosh pits are fucking crazy, man. <laughs> the, but the, you know, there was one 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 thing that I saw that was not brutal, but it was cool as fuck, and it was in uh, I think I believe it was Sweden or or Switzerland. But there, you know, out of like the the sixty seventy thousand people that were out there, there was like maybe five thousand concentrated people who sat down on their ass, right? And we're like, the fuck are these people doing? Are, like, are they protesting our set? What the <laughs> fuck is going on, right? And what was crazy is, you know, you, you're not going to stop playing. You just keep going. So we start on, on um, I believe the song was Gorilla Radio that we were playing at that, that point. All of a sudden, we see him start doing this. The rowing? They were row. It, it was like a Viking row. It was a <laughs> fucking move. It was a move that the crowd was doing. So there's five five thousand people out of the thirty thousand that are sitting in you know like next to each other r- lines rows you know just fucking of people rowing on beat dog. It was the wow. fucking there, there you go. go. <laughs> Fucking Vikings, man. How crazy. That <laughs> DNA just stuck with those people. And, and that was just the little section of it, man. If you were to see from stage, there was like, it was spot, like spotted groups. And they sat down. And they sat down and were rowing. <laughs> That's so fucking crazy. Yeah. Have you ever seen the, there was a, they did a Viking chant once at a soccer game. Crazy, man. Oh, man. It's wild because the whole fucking arena did it. And you feel it. You like, feel that shit. You're like, woo. You got to think, man, when they, they were going to wars back in the day, oh they rallied all their guys up just like that. Look at that. Yeah. Look look, at all there goes fucking the fucking people. row. They're out of tune, though. This fucking boat's going to go sideways. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't know where that move comes from, but it looks cool when it you see cool it. It's fuck. fucking. It's got to be an old school Viking thing. Yeah, they probably do it when they get drunk. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, think about it. You know, they used to conquest motherfuckers, so they're like fucking rowing, <laughs> rowing and rowing. Imagine here, like, see if you can find that the Viking one at a soccer game because it's like I think it's at a World Cup or something like that. But they're like, yeah, yeah. You hear it in the crowd, and he's like, "Oh my god!" Imagine hearing that shit over the <laughs> when water when they're coming to get coming you, coming towards yeah. your village. You're like, grab yeah. the baby. We're gonna live in the woods. Fuck. Yeah. We gotta get out of here. It's, yeah, I, yeah. They and those are big dudes. Yeah. Here it is. Oh. Oh yeah. Look at that. They're all tuned in together, man. They're all in sync. Look at the hands. That's spooky. Yeah, imagine Those that. Those motherfuckers, if somebody reignites them, imagine that horde the is coming. Again. They will take over the world again if there's enough of them. Imagine that horde coming oh at God. you, bro. A fucking crazy line of DNA. You know, a, a, yeah. a, a line of people that just were conquerors. Sturdy motherfuckers. Sturdy, giant motherfuckers who did mushrooms. Yeah. They would, they would blaze up mushroom their fucking heads into oblivion and you just go slash people. I'd go get them. It's Oof. crazy, man. Is it? There's another one? It's another one. So that's like their thing, the that's Viking club. I guess the NFL Vikings sort of adopted this recently. They do it in their football games. Yeah, but look at that dork with the glasses. <laughs> Put your fucking hands down, man. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, bro. <laughs> you ain't a Viking, bro. They're trying to figure out you, the beat. You stop that, sir. Look, he's like, oh, you know, hi, I get it. <laughs> he's a spliking. So when, when you first start rapping, like uh, you rapping with kids in your neighborhood, are you like aspiring to be a rapper and writing shit down and trying 
different things on your friends? Like, how do you get started? Well, the, the way that I started, I was writing, you know, like poetry first. And really? Yeah. Like what kind of poetry? Just like, you know, like hood stuff, you know, just stuff that rhymed, but like just sort of writing it down. Like it was, uh, it was almost like writing raps, but it just, you know. It's without saying it, right? Because you read it and shit like that, whatever. But I would just write poetry about, you know, everyday shit. You know what I mean? No, nothing, uh, you know, I wasn't like doing like the, I don't know if there's like categories of poetry, but, it, you know, it was just stuff that, that would happen from day to day, you know. And uh, I, I had a knack for writing. I realized that. And I always wanted to be a journalist. That's, you know, what really? the, the thing that I thought I was going to be at school, right? Do you write now? Uh, I was for a while, but I, I looked what, at it. What kind it, of stuff? Uh, just, again, everyday stuff. Or, you know, I'd like randomly pick something to write about. So if it was can about the cannabis industry, I'd write something about that. If it was about the music industry, I'd write something about that. Like I, I every now and then I would, uh, there was a back in the early 2000s, there was a magazine called industry insider magazine. And occasionally I would write articles for that. I wasn't really that great because, you know, I was so spotty in school that, you know, my, you know, it needed work, mm -hmm. you know, but they, they left it raw the way that, that, that I would put it out there. And people got my point, and that, that was cool. But I looked at it uh, in the way that the, the music that I've done in a lot of the songs serve as a, a certain form of journal, journalism for me, you know, like, mm. you know, bringing up certain issues that people don't necessarily hear, like Throw Your Set in the Air is a song on Tebbles Boom, and it's a song about how you would get, you know, in – in, inducted into a gang how you get put into a gang how you fall into it and some people might think you know by hearing it that it was glorifying it and praising it but it wasn't it was basically this is how it is this is so you know the signs to look for if your kids are you know fucking around with the wrong people you know and that's you know i took it like okay you know maybe i'm not a journalist like i intended to be but this is my way of it you know, I can enlighten people with certain things and, uh, you know, like anything, somebody's going to read something or hear something and, and maybe misinterpret what you say. But, mm. you know, it's all about who's who's listening and who's reading and who's watching and stuff like that and their interpretation of it. And some get it, some don't. And that's just the nature of it. But like most people get it. And I've I've come across people that have come to me and come and said hey man your 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 songs on temple of boom man you know they they helped to get me through these times or you, these songs raised me they taught me this this and that that's and, awesome and to me you know that that's that's the impact right there that's the shit that yeah. means more than anything right because i'm sure you remember songs that got you through right oh yeah for sure you know there was songs from krs1 and public enemy that you know got me through and fired me up you know, and inspired and stuff like that. Karis One's another one people forget about, man. I'll be in my car just going, whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the yeah. police. Yeah, whoop, I whoop. mean, he he, ta he taught me how to be a bullhorn. You know oh. what I mean? Like, tell, you know, like, yeah. tell the truth. You know, get your truth. Tell, get the word out and, and, and not be fearful of what might happen because he could have been one of the biggest stars in, in hip-hop. But he chose not to be. He chose to be a voice. And sometimes in being that voice, you know, 
you get objects put in front of you and uh, certain opportunities don't you know get put on your table because he says some great shit man he's yeah. talking about getting mad at the president it's like being mad at the manager at mcdonald's yeah you know for the way the corporation's being run yeah it's it's he he is uh very insightful in in the shit that he says and he is very unafraid <coughs> to state it and state his opinion for you to get like people coming up to you when they first started coming up to you telling you that your music got them through things that it means so much to them when that first started happening that must have been surreal you know yeah uh, it because as an artist as especially as a young artist you that's not something you think about. Oh, right. well, these songs are going to... Well, it depends on, on the artist you are, well, right? You guys hit... How old were you? Like 23 or something like that? How old were you when... I was like... Uh, we released in 91, and it really started going for us in 92, so I was 22. You're a kid. <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. Yep. There goes the baby fro. Wow. <laughs> wow. Look at the baby fro. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, think about that, man. That is so crazy for you to go from the guy who... Yo, MTV Raps. Yeah. Who remembers that? I did a bungee jump at this spring break with uh, Tretch from Naughty by Nature. <laughs> was that the one that was in Cancun? No, that was Daytona Beach right there. Oh, okay. When 92. MTV was still when MTV was still allowed over there it was back when MTV had music. Yeah, when they had music format. <laughs> MTV was MTV was music videos. Yeah. Good luck finding a fucking music video now. <laughs> I yeah. guess they still. You got to go to YouTube. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. What was it like when it first started popping off and you were 22 years old? Was it? Did it feel real? It, it was a it was a crazy thing because it's not something that I had ever envisioned happening. You know, I didn't think that you know the music would blow up like that. You know, we were doing it to obviously try and 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 make a name for ourselves and and uh, make music that people like. But fuck, we didn't see that coming at all. <sighs> Especially with Insane in the Brain when they told me uh, when like when Killer Man started going, it was like surreal because you know. We didn't think that song would take just because, it, you know, of, of the chorus itself. Mm -hmm. You know, fuck what the song is about. The, you know, we knew that the chorus was, you know, what they were going to hear more than anything. And so, I, you know, we, we thought, nah, we're going to have a good underground album. We didn't realize it would blow up. <laughs> we didn't think they were going to put Kill a Man in the Juice movie. Yeah. And that would blow that song up even more so than it was, it was getting. Um, because we had released Funky Phil ones first. And it was a double A side single, Funky Phil one and Killer Man on the other A side, which means um, at that time that DJs had the option of which song they wanted to go. Whereas most of the time you had an A side, B side, and the A side is most definitely the one that the record company wants you to push. We gave it a double A side because we thought maybe the DJs would like Killer Man more. They went with Funky Phil when the record company because they figured it would be easier to market, mm. right? And then the DJ started flipping the record. Of course. And we started getting traction behind that. Our record was out like six months, had dropped off the chart, and they flipped the record. Our shit slowly starts to go back up the chart. We got back on the chart and started climbing, and we were getting a whole lot of mix show play. And... Uh, then we started doing a lot of promotional shows, that being one of them, and it started going. And Killer Man started getting us going, and uh, I mean, we toured for probably a year and a half, like a lot, just a lot of promotional shows, you know, not getting paid, you know, just 
you know, Sony having us out there promoting the record. And by the time, uh, you know, our record got back back up into the middle of the charts, I mean, it was still rising, but and they saw that. They were like, we got to get them off the road and making a new record. So that's when we got out there with Black Sunday. And uh, with Black Sunday and Insane coming out, again that's not a song i thought would blow up when they chose that for the single i'm like well all right there's better songs but fuck it that's the one okay so it comes out boom it explodes and now we have our black sunday charting at number one coming in and our our first album had come all the way from the bottom to hit number five so we had two two albums in the top 10 200 top 10 of the 200 songs you know on the chart which no one had ever done in hip-hop before we had one in five slot and uh you know fuck we definitely didn't think that was going to happen i mean you know it it was all a surprise and it went from one minute you could go to a mall and be you know unassuming and nobody even knows who the fuck you are and you know you're getting about your day to now you go to the mall and the whole fucking mall is swarming on you like fucking you're like you know paul mccartney or something it was the craziest <laughs> shit they they would ask us to leave the malls like really yeah like uh we used i used to go to this one called uh the montebello it was in montebello i can't remember what the name of the mall was but it was in montebello the only one down there at the time and we knew everybody there you know as we're coming up because that's where we'd go shop so you know you make friends and people in the shop and stuff like that and uh, when we come back off a tour this time and go try to go to that mall, you know, one of our friends fucked up and wore a Cypress Hill jacket. Oh. And that's like a fucking billboard when you're standing next to one of us, right? So before you know it, boom, we get swooped and, and you know. This the, pre-cell phone, too. Yeah, and the mall security comes out, hey, man, you know, I know it's fucked up, but you guys got to go. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's like, yeah, man, it's a commotion. You guys got to go. They're telling me. I'm like, they think somebody's going to fight. I'm like, wow. All right. I never went back to that mall after that. I was like, all right, cool. Because, you know, one, I didn't want to cause them problems. Two, it was now it was tough to go somewhere at that time and not get, you know. Swarmed. Not get swarmed. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was quite quite a uh an experience man like you know because you only ever hear about it till it happens and you might you know if you have friends in the, in the industry and it's happening for them you might see it indirectly you know like f- through that through their shit and uh you know we had friends in the business you know for, for kid frost was one of my friends um before we got out there and is he still around yeah yeah he still does stuff you know um i don't know if he's putting out so much new music these days but he's he's still here and there he's doing some of the cannabis industry stuff too because he's a big connoisseur i gotta tell you my man smokes used to smoke like a train man like him and i would trade joints off left and right but you know for a time you know i would go hang with him at his gigs i'd be his bodyguard because i was the one that was not afraid to carry the hammer (laughs) meaning the magnum in my waistline you know i was we were cowboys man we we were always armed at that time from 89 to probably 97 or 98 we were holding pistols on our hip like cowboys and you know he knew that so he asked me he would ask me to go to the gigs you know to you know 
double as his bodyguard. I wasn't his bodyguard, but I was his bodyguard. You know what I mean? Right, right. And um, I'd see the way he handled it, and I'd see the way you know people crowded around him, and mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, I so I learned how to deal with it watching you know how he would do it in a negative way or a positive way because you know he was sometimes embraced the crowd sometimes he's like fuck off me mm-hmm. you know like a lot of a lot of artists are you know and uh that sort of prepared me so that when you know we got in our lane you know i knew how to sort of deal with it and i you know was always courteous and and cool and respectful and never the guy that's like nah man fuck that get out of here Cause I see it, and some of my homies were like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I hated the feeling that when the fans would walk away, just totally fucking wind out of their sails and shit like that. Yeah. Now they don't like this artist <laughs> ever again, you yeah. know. And I saw that, and I never wanted to have anyone walk away with that experience. So I always embraced it, even when it was a pain in the ass, you know. Mm. So, when was your first time ever getting on stage? Do you remember? First time, there, there used to be a club called Radiotron here in the 80s, right? And it was the hip-hop club. If you were into hip-hop, any aspect of it, whether it was rapping, breakdancing, popping, graffiti, all the people went to that spot. And um, it was hard to get in there, and it was hard to get on the mic, no less. Um, but we had a homie who was like a legendary DJ out here when, when uh, the AM station was playing hip-hop. His name was Tony G. And he was uh, the the leader of the Mixmaster show, the head Mixmaster. And he had a residency at the Radiotron. So we grew up with one of his um one of his boys that was his like um his uh protege. So they invited us over and myself and Sen got on the mic and mellow and I froze the fuck up, <laughs> I tell you. I froze up. I forgot every rap I ever wrote or ever memorized. I was like, uh, it, was, <laughs> it would be one of the two times that I would freeze in my life. And and it was that was the first time I was on stage. And, and all those people looking at me, waiting, expecting something. I totally blew it, you know. And I told myself, okay, I got to get over the nervousness. And then the other thing we were doing was, uh, it was like... Um, they they wanted rappers to do this PSA for some bullshit, right? And they wanted us to write this rap and put all this certain information in there. And I had it. I had it memorized. I had it locked in. The minute they said, go, and they were filming it. You know, this is to film it. I kept fucking it up horribly. <laughs> I, I didn't even get through it. I, I was like, I'm sorry. I can't do it. Fuck. I, you know, I, I was getting mad at myself doing that. Like, Fuck, what's wrong with me? Were you, you high? Know? No, I wasn't. Maybe that was the problem. That was probably the problem, you know, because when I'm not <laughs> high is when shit like this happens, right? So those were the two times that I totally fucked it up. And I like from the last time I said, I'll never do that again. I'm going to be prepared and I'm going to get through the anxiety or whatever it is. And um, so those were the first two times. But the first time on stage where I actually pulled it off was probably one of our first showcases. It was at a... It was at this place off of the 10, and it wasn't a showcase. It was actually a, a, a competition. You know how they used to do uh, competitions at clubs like fucking, uh, what do they call it? I uh, forgot what they used to call them, but, you know, different bands would, it was like a battle of the bands, right? So mm-hmm. we went in, and uh, I'm coming off of that horrible fucking 
deal that had just happened, you know, maybe a month or two before. And I totally got over it. And, and we were performing real estate, you know, in this showcase. And we lost, but we made the biggest impression there because the song, you know, we performed it like, you know, the way that it's supposed to be. And then at the end, Sendog jumped on the big judge's table and he you know, he grabbed his balls right in front of the fucking female judge. And then as he jumps off the table, it breaks in half into her lap. Oh, and, no. <laughs> and everybody loved it. We lost to these dudes who are like new new edition wannabes. We call them Tootsie Rolls, but we don't remember the name. <laughs> they, they won. But in reality, we won because that's everybody was talking about us at the end, you know, like how raw that was. And after that show, I realized you know, this is this is how I'm supposed to do it. And I seen KRS-One uh, do a show one time where the sound went out. He didn't have a stage. The, he was on a couple of tables that were put together. And he just got up in front of the whole club, no microphone, no music, and just started rapping his verses. And people were rapping right along with Ooh. him. Not giving a fuck that the sound turned off, but the fact that he just continued to do the show. And that right there taught me a lot about how you control shit on stage. Yeah, sometimes when, when things go wrong, it's a great opportunity. Oh, yeah. yeah. We did a show at the Improv last month. Like maybe last month or the month before, the power went out. And they're like, uh, what do you want to do? I said, fuck it. Let's do a show. I could yell. Yeah. So we just did, we, everybody just did the show with no microphone. But that was a, you know, the improv's a small room. It's only 180 people. Yeah. I mean, that that, that place was, you know, a small place too. But I mean, it, it goes to show you, man, like it, if you got it. You, you can do it. Yeah. And it's probably better sometimes because it's unique. Yeah, because people will remember yeah. that. You know, the the other way, yeah, you know, it probably would have been a great show and people would be talking about it, but they'll remember the fact that you got over that adversity and were able to still deliver. And that's the shit that KRS-One did for me. He, he showed me through the adversity. He kept doing the show and the people were still with him. And I thought, okay, one day that's going to be me and I'm going to do what, the teacher does oh. and uh you know that 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 had been one of the most important things that i learned you know and watching others do shows and stuff like that and what i would do when i got up there you know and uh, I, I applied all those those you know lessons man you know and and it's made me who i am as my part of cypress hill and when i do my solo stuff and when i'm with prophets of rage that you know, that got me prepped for everything that I do now in terms of music. Now, how did you, well, it's good that to you, for you to tell people that you had a real hard time your first time performing. Oh, yeah. There's probably a lot of people out there that They'll never get say anxious. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people never say that. No. They'll lie, you know, but that's, I think that's important. And there's nothing wrong with those feelings, man. It's it's good. No. To, you got to learn, man. You're a hey, kid. It's 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 like, uh, you liken it to, to like college stars that are coming into the professional sports now mm -hmm. like basketball players for instance you get this number one draft pick he comes to a team and everybody has these high expectations no one knows that this kid you know some people own the space like lebron and kobe and kevin garnett who came straight from high school and they own the space the minute they got in it i mean kobe had to work yeah. He wasn't the greatest, you know, when he when he started, he had to work to get to where he was at. And and uh, a lot of these guys do some of them, you know, 
again, they come in and they already got it. You know, like LeBron, he was, you know, playing a grown's man, grown man's game right when he got into the league, thrown into the fire, but he was ready for that. He got better and, and learned the role and learned who he was as he's gone, but he was one of those rare thing, r- rare people that can just jump into it. Some people have to get better at it. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same thing with music. Like, you get thrown on, on that big stage for the first time. If you're not prepped for it, you're going to definitely be nervous now you could either embrace that and it'll it'll be your first show and you could do a good one or you could do a horrible one but either way you can learn from that yeah and uh if you don't learn from it then the run is short if you learn from it you know you know you learn how to to get better and and sustain a longer career how did you learn how to get over the anxiety like your first show having a the first show suck like that what was it how did, what was what did you learn like how did you how did did you take classes did you read a book like, we, you, you know do? what we did that that helped me was that we rehearsed a lot mm-hmm. because for me it was like more remembering the songs it wasn't like the nerve to go out in front of people because we came from the break dance and b-boy culture uh the popping and stuff like that so much of that is going against someone battling someone in front of a crowd and if you can be in front of a crowd doing that, because that's vulnerable. I mean, you know, because in a battle, you could either win or you lose. And if you lose, you know, obviously you could lose in an embarrassing way or you lose in a close battle. But either way, people are sitting there watching you, judging you, either cheering you or booing you. When, you know, any one of those. So that helped me be able to get on stage and perform in front of people. It, for more, for me, it was more about knowing the songs, making sure that I know mm. them through the nervousness, you know. And, and so for us, we did a lot of rehearsals in the early days just so that those first shows that we did, that we were locked in and we made an impression. And, you know, when we did that and we saw the results of how people were reacting to our show, it gave me more confidence. So, you know, I'd. I'd rehearse the songs in my head, you know, when I wasn't around the other guys, I'd be kicking the songs and I'd be, or be on a treadmill working out, saying the songs, you know, getting them in my head and just gave me the confidence that I know this fucking shit. I go up there, I'll rock this fucking thing. I'm not going to forget it. Cause that's always the problem for me. It was never getting in front of people. It was, do I know my shit? And now I know it in such a way that like, you know, it's it's second nature do i still get those nervous butterflies yeah for sure some shows depending who's watching who's on the side stage or how big the crowd is and and whatnot yeah i still get some of that but you know i i do a quick meditation before i go out there you know just in my head real quick and then our band prayer and then that's the that's the switch right there and we go and we're ready and it but it took me a while to get to that you know because it takes work it's like anything if you're an athlete if you're a boxer you're only going to get better by boxing all the time mm-hmm. training all the time not overtraining, but making sure that you're in there putting in the work and it's the same thing when you're rocking stages you know um a lot of us sometimes forget to go and put the time in and rehearse and you could see that when there's a sloppy show or someone's out of breath or they're not saying the whole line or they said the line wrong or they're changing up fragments of the song to make it easier for their performance and it doesn't necessarily fit. That's when you know somebody ain't 
putting in the work. But for us, you know, we always, you know, that was a part of the draw for Cypress. That's how we won a lot of people over was the energy of our live show. So, um, but it took that, the rehearsals, man. And, and I would tell any artist coming up right now, man, before you start doing your shows, you because you may get a hit like that fast these days. And you may be called to go do that show. Now, if you don't do that show right and you suck, as good as that song is, you're never going to sell tickets when they fucking say, hey, so-and-so is performing at the you know this place ah fuck that i'd rather just listen to the record he sucks live mm. you know so rehearse man rehearse and then after that hey take you know do what you will but those they fucking help man you know uh for your confidence on performing the song that's a wise thing to tell people man be a professional be a pro you can be a professional. Decide you're a professional. That's Put right. in that fucking work. That work does give you confidence, and it, it, it works with fighting. It works with comedy. I'm sure it works with everything. Yeah, man. You got to be proficial, professional, you be ready, professional, <clears throat> and official at the same time. Proficial. What, what is the meditation that you do? Just the the self awareness. You know what I mean? Like the the circular breathing. You know, and uh, concentrating on that, and in the moment, and then you know just letting that clear my head you know what i mean just focus focusing on the breathing i mean that's what they tell you pretty much in any meditation to focus on the breathing and all these things are going to come through your head but if you keep on focusing on that you know everything sort of goes away mm -hmm. and you're you're reset so you know i'll i'll do that when when i feel maybe some sort of anxiety before going on if I don't feel that, I don't necessarily do the meditation. I'll, we'll just do the prayer, and that sort of, like, you know, sets it all in. But, yeah, like, some shows, man, I'll, I'll have to, like, go in a, a room and just sit there and, you know, do the breathing, man. And, and it helps. People might think, what the fuck is I going to do? It's going to reset your mind and give you some clarity. Mm, you know, for yeah. me, at least, that's what it did. What's the biggest crowd you guys ever performed in front of? Um... I think the biggest was Woodstock 94, I think it was, 93, 94, and that was like 380-some-odd thousand people. <laughs> That's so crazy. Oh, my God. We, we've done some big ones. That's like, a country. Yeah. That's we, a small European country. We, we've done some, <laughs> like, you know, like at, uh, you know, 100,000 people and 150,000 people. Is there a video of that, people. Jamie? Oh, my God. I got to see this. this That's I, fucking insane. <laughs> That is insane. And that I had just cut my hair right there. I was like, you know. Whoo. Oh my God. See the little guy next to Muggs? Mm hmm He was our 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 uh <laughs> our miniature knockout guy. He knew jujitsu, taekwondo, shotokan. He trained with, with my boy Kenji and he was he was like uh he was like our unofficial security. Oh, that's hilarious, because <laughs> unassuming, right? Yeah, he's a little guy. I mean, he even did a he even did a few MMA fights. Look at some the years size back. of that fucking crowd. That is insane. I almost lost my shit right here because you know seeing three hundred and some odd thousand people <laughs> jumping around to your shit. God, you know it could give you some equilibrium problems. <laughs> I, I <laughs> would imagine because it, it's it looks like waves crashing into each other. God, when it's that big. 
mean, that's got to be one of the biggest concerts ever yes. that anybody's ever performed in front of. In North America, for sure. I mean, in, in all of human history. Yeah, it was one of the biggest. How the fuck? I mean, what, how do you get it? more than 380,000 people together? Yeah, it's I mean, that's, crazy. That's probably only happened a few times. It's it's crazy. I mean, every band they had on this this particular bill was huge at the time, you know. So it was, yeah, it, it was it was pretty crazy trying to just get there. We like some of us had to get in through boat. Some of us uh, had to get in through helicopter. Why? Because there's too many because people? they they had started parking on the roads like the old school Jesus Woodstock, and they jammed Christ. up the highways and stuff like that. They parked like they pretty much shut the shit down. Uh, yeah, and I went in through helicopter, and some of the other guys went in through the helicopter, boat. That's when you know you're on top of the world. When you're I, flying into a show in a fucking helicopter. And, and with I'll Tom tell you, Segura. that's when you realize why you can never get away from the cops when they're in the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> they fucking see everything. Well, that's a funny thing, man. When you watch those dudes that are trying to escape from the cops on the ground, and then you, you watch the, yeah. the cops in the helicopter. The spotlight just stays on the car yeah. the entire time. Yeah, look no. at that that's aerial. That's yeah. That's and that's just oh. a piece of it right there. And they had that a rotating stage. Insane. What do you do when you have to take a shit? Like, Man. how long does it take to get from the front row to the back if you uh, have to take a shit? I'll tell you, we walked around in that shit right there, and it was super muddy and crazy, and people were, like, butt naked in, with mud smeared all over their fucking bodies, and it was like people went primal. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. It, there Look they go, that. right there. They were having mudslide parties. Um, oh, man, that looks awesome. People made babies that day in their tent. I'm sure they did. Oh, for sure they did. I, I yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people out there right now. It was it was it was fucking crazy, man. I got to tell you there was there was people out there totally hippied out, like straight up butt naked and you know, and there was a good portion of them. I mean, not not in terms of the whole concert. I mean, it was a small percentage, but like you seen just naked people walking around free <laughs> out there. It was crazy <laughs> as fuck. We like we're like are we is this really happening? <laughs> Shit, man! And and then the mud was so thick, man. It was the type where like if you walked through it with your shoes and your shoes weren't tight or you weren't wearing boots, it was sucking the shoe right off of your foot. <laughs> it happened to me a number of times. Hell, in that show, I jumped into the crowd because normally I would jump into the crowd and uh, you know just be floating, you know, mm -hmm. stage dive style. But I would still be doing the song, right? And uh, on that particular show, they took my shoes and socks. <laughs> I got back on stage with no shoes and socks. And, you know, about 15 years later, you know, I had one guy with one shoe come to the show and fucking have me sign it. Oh. And then the, the other shoe, some other, some chick had it and had me sign it. Wow. Some years later. So I, I caught up with both shoes. What about the socks? Didn't catch up with the socks. <laughs> <laughs> didn't catch up with the socks but the shoes yeah caught up with them that, what do they have a limited amount of tickets for woodstock i mean what the fuck do they do when you I, get that many people i think they probably started with the, some sort of limit and, and then it just became chaos and then it became chaos you know like that something they couldn't handle i Imagine mean it, if you lived there and that shit descended oh, upon your town. They were pissed off. Oh. I know they were pissed off. They had a break for like yeah. fucking 25 years. They had a break. They sold 164,000 tickets, but the crowd estimated size was 550,000. Okay, well, <laughs> shit, I was too short. <laughs> 200,000 short. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Because the, the rest rushed the gate. You yeah. know, they, they, they took the fence and 
you know, took Destroyed. it down and they just fucking rolled, so rolled on it. I would imagine. Yeah. It, it, it you know, cause when it's an event that everybody wants to get to, they're going to find a way to it. And, and, and it's outside and it's outside. Yeah. And the, the, with those numbers, man, that's just, you, can, you can't stop that. Number. No. And, and it, it, you know, it's, it's a great part of their history because I mean, you know, that one was a, a good one where no one got hurt and there was no crazy uh no crazy shit happening like the next one after that i mean they had so what happened to the next one uh well shit they had uh, a bunch of uh women say that they had gotten raped or molested at um at the th at the one the following year um and uh it was fires and shit at the end yeah and then there was oh. fires there was a whole bunch of people lost their fucking mind at that one and they, they had some great bands too so you know it, uh, they don't do that anymore right woodstock's done. no they're, they're, they're doing it this summer they're doing it enough they're ah, doing it. what are you doing you mm -hmm. fucking idiots move sell your house yeah do <laughs> something <laughs> do something it, it's crazy though because this is the, the fires holy shit man yeah, oh, they had bonfires. Yeah, I believe when Limp oh Biscuit God. or yeah, Corn went on, it was either Limp Biscuit or Corn, and the, the the fires just fucking started. People were pissed too because they were charging so much for water, and like they couldn't they couldn't get to the bathrooms. Like you were asking, like there was they didn't have the facilities they, set up as well. Or yeah, they didn't have uh, adequate facilities for what what the fuck was popping. I mean, wow. you know, uh, you know, a Jesus thousand, Christ! Look uh, at the fucking what it looks like after it's over. Listen, a thousand Andy Gumps for five hundred thousand people is not. Whoa. Oh, you imagine you need like ten thousand. Yeah, imagine being the dude who gets in there after five thousand. I mean, look at that. Taking a look shit. At, they, there. they they totally took over the fucking that highway right crazy. there. Crazy. They shut down the fucking highway. They just parked their cars. Yeah, they made yeah. They made the highway the parking. That is lot. crazy. <laughs> look at that. Yeah. At least it was kind of orderly. Like, look how they did sort it. Sort of. Sort of. They shut down. I'll tell the you this though, they were cold blooded. Um, the the organizers because holy <gasps> shit, look at the fucking <laughs> that is so crazy. Oh yeah, it's like a uh, uh, these airplane guys. Field. These guys had some fucking wow. moxie. I'll tell you that. Hey, yeah. listen, you know, after every band was done with their set, they expected you to leave right away because the next wave of bands was coming, and they were getting your spot. So, like, if you had a dressing room, once your set was done, you were expected to get the fuck out. So you had a helicopter out of there. If if yeah, it was best if you did because if you didn't take the ride when when it when you were supposed to, you were getting stuck there. <laughs> they couldn't guarantee that they could give you the ride back to your shit after that, you know, because they had all the other bands to think of, and they might not have room for you when they take the other bands. So. <laughs> It was like, yeah. Look at that fucking picture. Oh my god. Yep. Oh my god. Ah uh, yes, that's what oh, Pac. Look, it looks like oh Pac Man. Oh my god, that looks is looks like Pac Man like fucking Pac -Man. eating the stage right there. That's insane. <laughs> that picture is insane. Yeah, it was that. That's that's the one I'll remember the most. I mean, we've we've done some huge gigs, but like that one by far. You know, never have we played for another five hundred thousand. You know, what um, does it sound like capacity. when five hundred thousand people scream? Much like that Viking chant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had a small nation right there. Yeah, That's for crazy. real, legitimately. Yeah. Like when you leave there and then you go do a regular gig afterwards, does it feel weird? Uh, yeah, well, it it depends, but it yeah, some adjusting. It 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 does take some adjusting, you know, especially if the next gig isn't as hype as that. You're like. Fuck, we just came from Woodstock. <laughs> but <laughs> fortunately, the smaller gigs that we had after that, you know, in terms of playing festivals, they were like, you know, 
in between 30,000, 70,000, 100,000. And we felt that that gave us such an experience that we can handle any fucking stage. So it became easier for us to do festivals after that. And the reaction that we would get at these festivals were smaller versions of what we did there you know and uh it, it was it was a great experience because we had we had been doing like a, a couple of european festivals before that so it sort of prepared us for that but we didn't we didn't i mean the fucking numbers we were definitely not prepared for we're like whoa what the fuck yeah, that's like that transcends reality yeah i mean listen we know that that's not our show they're not all there for us you know because it's a mixed bag right a bunch of different artists and you're winning over people if anything you're you're you're, you're there playing for your 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 base of people that might have come to see you but you're winning everybody else over if you're doing it right and uh for us it was like a, a victory because we saw you know half a million people up there jumping up and down to all our shit and they knew the words and they were singing with us and it, you know, it was like a a big notch under the belt and, and a boost for our confidence, knowing that we can get in front of anybody, play with anyone and get that reaction. I mean, because after that, you know, we were getting booked on metal um, driven festivals and stuff where we're the only hip hop on it, but it's all straight up metal. I mean, we, oh, wow. were, we were playing shows. um co-headlining under Metallica, right? Whoa. Metallica, Cypress Hill. um <laughs> Uh, Biohazard, Deftones, Fear Factory, and and all that wow. stuff. You know what I mean? And we'd be in that mix playing those festivals with those guys and with hip hop music. And you know the boost that it gave us in the confidence is it was like fuck that we can play with any of these motherfuckers. It doesn't matter who it is. And and we went to those metal fe metal festivals with our hip hop and got metal reaction. <laughs> <laughs> mosh pits stage dives everything what you know and and it felt good to be able to hang up there with a metallica i mean yeah what they do to a crowd is crazy but we realized that if we were playing on the same venue going before them we can in, in a festival form we can fucking hang with anyone and and uh that's that pretty much put us over the top with doing festivals like yeah we're we're gonna fucking rule this shit people are gonna <laughs> have to people are gonna have to up their game when we're on that festival with them that's the way we took it i would imagine you couldn't sleep for days after that show the adrenaline was crazy <laughs> i gotta tell you the adrenaline was crazy and like then, when you're in the helicopter leaving were you like what the fuck just happened yeah we were we were tripping out man i mean we were like totally in awe of of the response that we got and the 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 you know the enormity of the fucking crowd man i yeah. mean it was fucking huge just to be a part of something that's that i mean that's like something that no one there is ever going to forget we took it for granted i got to tell you when we fucking uh, they well they want you to do well, okay we'll do woodstock whatever and 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 uh when we got there that's when we saw just how fucking crazy it was. I think this, yeah. See, oh, this is you. They, so yeah. they steal your shoes? <laughs> yeah, they're gonna, yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna start coming. Watch, I, I have to hold my shirt forward so that I don't get choked out. And there goes, there goes the first yeah, shoe. They're about to, they're about to right take now. that first that's one. Yeah. So ridiculous. What it, were you thinking when they were taking your shoe? Like, was, God damn it! I was like, oh fuck! There goes one shoe. There goes my white sock. <laughs> 
Yeah, there goes the other shoe. That is so ridiculous. And there is no fucking security that can stop 500,000 people. Save all that shit. No. You're, you're at the mercy of the fans. <laughs> Somebody's going to grab from my sock pretty soon. That is so wild. They're just stealing socks. Look at it. Steal your pants. Hey, listen. You know, they, they, they tried. Anybody grab your dick? No, you know, they tried to grab the weed in my pocket. Because sometimes, you know, when right. your adrenaline is kicking, you're not really thinking, you know, what's in my pocket and shit right. like that. But yeah, you know, throughout, the, I had chicks trying to grab my shit for sure. Of course. Know, for sure. Yeah. That was a little, you know, crazy for me, you know, but it is what it is. If you're going to stand close, yeah. uh, you, you know, <laughs> shit like this happens, right? Yeah, man. I mean, if you're going to stage dive, you got to yeah. assume some weird shit is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, people were mostly respectful, you know, but they would go through my pockets to see if I had weed. In <laughs> one, one they night. rabbit ear your pockets out? Yeah, I did. I had some, <laughs> I had like an ounce of weed in one, at one show and I jumped in and I totally forgot I had it in my pocket. Boom. If I can took my goddamn weed. <laughs> Like, oh, I hope you enjoyed that. I bet they did. Extra. I know they did. While they're rolling that joint, this is Be Real's I, weed, man. I know they Straight did. Straight from California. This is the real shit. <laughs> yeah. California weed to this day still holds up. Yeah. I mean, you got some good Colorado weed. There's some good weed all over the country, but most weed is just, it's like okay. It's okay other places. Yeah. Colorado and California, and then the rest is kind of, Seattle's got real good weed. Seattle actually will blow your fucking mind. They'll blow your mind. Yeah, I gotta say. Oregon, they'll blow your mind. People have stepped up. They're still <laughs> behind California, you know, in terms of uh, how much good weed there is here. Like, I mean, yeah. there's so much, you know, from north to south and in central Cal. There's so many different strains that are fucking good, right? You go to other places, and they have a few strains that are good. But that's because they're still, you know, they're still trying to catch up in terms of knowledge and cultivation and stuff like that. And, and, and how to make the strains that they have, you know, maximize the flavor and, and, and the high and all that stuff. Some have caught up, and some are still lagging a little bit behind, but... I got to tell you, man, when uh, this last trip I just had to Vancouver, I was just there um, for 420. And uh, they had some shit that California boys would be like, yo, this is fire right here. You know, it, it, they had uh, animal cookies that were really good. Wedding cake, which is a strain that's, you know, popular here in Cali, you know, via the Jungle Boys and... and uh, burner and stuff like that when they were when they were working together on exotics and uh and they also had this this joint called black diamond and trioctane and all of them man i i gotta say all of them burned sweet they tasted good they had th th that white ash that people are looking for now you know people think you know when they see white ash it's the purest um news flash even if it has a little bit of black ash, it's still, you know, there's still, you know, people clean flush their roots. You know what I mean? It's just that some of the nutrients, if you're using salts as your nutrients, you know, which most people are these days, your ash comes out white. If you're using nutrients that are already pre-made, like an advanced nutrients and, and uh, the others, sometimes, you know, you might have a little bit of black ash because some of the components into those nutrients doesn't mean it's not clean. It just looks prettier when it's white. Mm. But anyway, these guys, their shit, all white ash. 
and the taste was fucking beautiful and the high was definitely there and i gotta say the guys in vancouver man they, they've stepped it up well they've been running weed through vancouver for a long time did you ever see that what was adam scorgi's documentary he had the culture high and then before that there was another one the documentary that was all about uncovering <clears throat> how much of Vancouver's entire economy is based on marijuana. And if yeah. you pulled it out, like when they talk about uh, the union, that's it, the business yeah. behind getting high. Um, when, if you pulled weed out of Vancouver, you took it out of their economy, their economy would essentially collapse. Yeah. I mean, it's responsible for so many people being wealthy up there. And it's so, it was, now it's 100% legal throughout the entire country. Yeah. But back then in 2007, I was in that documentary, that was 12 years ago. It was just tolerated. Yeah. It was was weirdly tolerated, yeah. where it wasn't legal, but they didn't ever arrest anybody for it. But there was a lot of gangsters, a lot of Hell's Angels were mm -hmm. involved, a lot of dudes were selling weed, and they had flashy diamond-covered colored watches and shit. There was a lot of that shit yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's still sort of, um, I mean, you know, listen, the black market's always going to be, mm -hmm. a, you know, anywhere especially right now that the taxes are so high to buy cannabis and to grow it and all that stuff, everything that involves it, it's pretty expensive right now. So they're encouraging organized crime right? in a certain way. Yeah. Which w w my point was, you know, when the corporations come in, that shit comes down mm -hmm. and then the black market has a bigger problem at that point mm -hmm. because then prices of cannabis will come down. Um, but you know, it's always going to exist in, in, you know, we sort of went through the same thing when, when 215 came about here mm -hmm. in California, where it was, you know, cops didn't know what the fuck to do when they caught you with it. They didn't want to do anything, you know, because they, they knew as well as we were, this shit is eventually going to be legal. They don't want to be wasting their time and putting people in jail for, for cannabis because, you know, there's other people that need to be in jail for real, for real yeah. crimes. Um, but, um, yeah, I think what's happening in Vancouver now is that now that it's legal, yeah, people are still making money and they're still, you know, they're still on top of the game, but it's 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 harder to make the money right now. Well, at least well, maybe not for Canada because it's federally legal. Mm -hmm. But you still got to jump through a number of hoops, you know, in terms of regulation and fines and fees and shit like that to operate, you know, and they're a little bit different than ours obviously we're not ours isn't like federal yet but uh i mean you know from what they were saying is that like you know in a few years all these companies will be making a whole lot of money right now they're making money but it's basically about survival getting past a certain time when all the all the legislation all the rules and all the regulations are finally set in place and they're not going to change from year to year like they yeah. like they have <clears throat> been so you know well denver had it real weird for a while where they weren't allowed to use banks yeah you know like us yeah right now here yeah. in cali we can't use banks yeah what do they do with it so they can can they use credit cards here they you, used to be able to yeah you can use credit cards um but realistically it's it's if you're making money from from cannabis in terms of if you're a cultivator or you're uh or, or whatever if you're a business entity in the cannabis world they won't take your money if they know it's coming from the cannabis cannabis culture right but you know in the last in the last two months they've you know P forbes just put out a story about that the federal government is going to start allowing banks to uh 
to allow banking in the cannabis in the cannabis it's sector. not going anywhere they'd be crazy to not you're just yeah. leaving money on the table you're leaving a whole lot of money a on the table lot. california considers plan to encourage marijuana banking yeah yeah and that and that just came out yesterday yeah. mm. you know the forbes story came out like maybe last week or something but this is you know one of the residuals of it is, is that you know in places like california that we had problems with banking yeah that is no longer going to exist so now if you needed to expand your business or something you can get a business loan now or you can actually put your money in the fucking bank you know whereas before you had to fucking buy some sort of vault or some shit mm. and keep it there and uh you know obviously that ain't safe because you got pirates out there still to this day trying to figure out okay where do they keep their money because it's yeah. not in the bank well, when I was in Colorado, when it first became legal, and they were having a real hard time, they couldn't use credit cards, it was all cash, and they just had spec ops guys everywhere, bulletproof oh, vests, yeah. just covered with guns, just ready yeah. to rock at any moment's notice, and they were worried that they were going to get, you know, yeah. someone was going to try to take over the store and take all the money. Yeah, I mean, there's still issues that they got to worry about moving into the future mm -hmm. in terms of transportation, right? You know, sure. because throughout throughout the history of doing any sort of business in terms of products going from one side of the, the nation to the other, you know, trucks get hijacked a lot yeah. for electronics, for any sort of goods. So, you know, when you're transporting cannabis from state to state, they're going to have to have that, you know, figured out too, because there's, you know, people that are going to be trying to jack those trucks yeah. and hitting that into the black market. <clears throat> you know, what else is weird? There, there's people that, they post up on people's private land and start these grow these grow centers. <laughs> yeah. They put up a garden in people's land. Like I, I, I have a friend who works on a ranch, and uh, in like central California, and they were uh, doing this run. They were checking gates and uh, checking fences for where the cattle are, and they found like a fucking acre of weed. <laughs> They're like, "What the fuck is this?" And there were some dudes there. They had campgrounds set up and shit, and yeah. It was yeah. like they were just, they were cartel dudes. They just like set up a spot. Yeah, find a spot, yeah. set up. They don't know who fucking owns it. And if they, you know. And they get dropped off there apparently. They, the, I think if I remember the story, they got the guys and the guys basically s explained how it worked. That they get dropped off and they get, you know, they, they leave them with seeds and this and that. And then new guys come in every couple weeks or a couple months and they live there. Yeah. They just watch the weed until it grows to the point where they can cultivate it. And then they move on yeah. after it's done. Yeah. But they Horse do that all over the place. Oh, yeah. People find them in like state parks and forests and shit. Yeah. They go like hiking. The, that's why it happens mostly up north and in central Cal. Mm -hmm. Down here, we don't really, I mean, the way they patrol the state parks is slightly different down here in the south. They'll they'll catch that shit. Yeah, you know? I think that's why they did it at the ranch because yeah. it, it was Tahone Ranch, which is like two hundred seventy thousand yeah. acres. Yeah, it's a huge place. Yeah, it's like uh, I believe natives own that mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. that ranch, right? Yeah, you can find to this day these stones where they ground up acorns, where they have like a little like a pivot, like a hole where yeah. they ground it up. I took pictures of it and shit. It's pretty cool because you got to think like that's probably a thousand years old. Yeah. Someone who's probably grinding acorns in there a thousand years a thousand ago. Thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. I've never yeah. been up north to Humboldt. I've never been up to that area. Oh man, it's it's uh it's unique. There's a lot of nice flavors up there. Um if you're into glass, 
a lot of good glass blowers out there. But that's a long-standing weed culture. Oh there, yeah, right? I mean that shit is generational, right there. That was like from the seventies. Yeah, you heard about Humboldt. Yeah, and 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 I'll tell you, man. You know, it, it, as quiet as as they've been in this cannabis culture, you know, you would think that they, that'd be one place that's like celebrated and whatnot. But I mean, they still are coming up with, you know, incredible flavors down there. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, breeding certain certain um certain strains and creating new strains and doing it in, in outside you know like yeah. with, with as they call sun grown or or a greenhouse you know which is not something we do here in the south in the south we we do hydro it's you know indoor because we don't have the same type of um moisture the, and shit up well there. we don't have the space neither you know the forestage and, right. and the moisture and uh you know, we have we have insects that would eat those outdoor crops if they're not in a greenhouse. You know mm. what I mean? Like fruit worms and shit like that. Up there and you know, up north after dark, you know, it gets cold. So some of those those insects can't live in that that environment. But in the south, it doesn't get as cold as it does up mm. there. So they can live here. So you know, if you're gonna do a greenhouse here, you got, it's got to be a greenhouse. It can't just be outdoor exposed because. They will get they will get fucked with for sure. Those photos that I've seen of that area, it's everything's so fucking green. It's crazy. It's like Seattle yeah. almost. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Uh, we were just there not too long ago playing a show up in Eureka. <laughs> Look at this yeah. fucking guy. Look at that yeah. guy in the middle of this forest of weed. Yeah, on a hillside, no yeah. less. You know, it's just not even ground. a flat ground. He's just he got it going. <laughs> yeah, that looks like he's just in the woods. Yeah, like he just started growing it in the woods. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I bet it has a different feel to it, right? If oh, it's yeah. out there with nature, like I it, mean, I, you, I don't want to get too hippie, too hippy dippy. But I would think that something that lives in nature with all those other trees and shits communicating with those trees. Oh yeah. I would think so. And you probably get more of like a natural feel for the weed. Yeah, they're, they're probably... Look at that deer. Damn, look at the weed plant. <laughs> it's like the fucking bushes. Jesus Christ. It's a California blacktail right there. Yeah. Columbia blacktail. It's a big deer. That is a, a big, big deer. for that part of the... Probably eating the weed plants. Probably. It's <laughs> probably healthy as fuck. I mean, if he's eating the seeds and shit, you know? Easy, yeah. Probably fertilizing some of that shit out there. Yeah. For the longest time, we used to have to get, you know, um, I'm one of the owners of Onnit, and when we made hemp protein, we used to have to buy our shit from Canada. It was so mm. stupid. It was like, this is so ridiculous. You have to buy hemp from another country yeah. to bring into this country. Stupid. Well, that's going to change for yes. sure. Yes. Well, it's got to change. I mean, for for everything, for clothing, even building houses. You ever see that hempcrete, that, that shit they make? It's like yeah. a hemp concrete. Yeah, it's crazy. It's lighter. It's better. It's got better insulation values. It's harder to burn. This is the type of shit that Jack Herrera was trying mm -hmm. to tell people in Emperor Wears No, Emperor Wears no Clothes. Yeah, you know, he that really was. All this stuff that we, we use today hemp can be you know the the alternative at yeah. a cheaper cost including plastic yeah biodegradable plastic all these people that are worried about plastic bottles and everything how bad they are for the environment hemp bottles you could make plastic at a hemp and it would be biodegradable yeah it sounds like horseshit. There's so many things that you could do with weed that it sounds like you're making things up. it sounds like you're making it up but it's actual it's actual yeah. fact <laughs> yeah, and dude, over the last like couple of months, I've been fucking around pretty heavily with CBD, like every day. I've been oh, yeah. I've been taking this. This is a, it's a one in one. It's 10 milligrams of CBD, 10 milligrams of THC. I take this. That's, that's the perfect it's fucking like one balance. in the morning, one in the afternoon. Woo! 
yeah. all day long. <laughs> all full of don't give a fuck juice. Just, there you yay. go. <laughs> we no, all need awesome. that. <laughs> yeah, man, it's awesome. It's an interesting time. Yeah. You know, for, for someone who was, you know, you used to have to hide it before. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the beauty of it now is that you don't have to hide it. And people that used to, you know, you got people now that you never thought were smokers. And, you know, now they're coming out and just being totally free with it. And that's great, man. You know. What? Is that a hemp laptop? What the fuck is that? A hemp It top. might just be a cover, but yeah. <clears throat> That's pretty cool. But how could it be a cover if it's you know, like the USB ports and everything like that? Uh, they have those like skin covers. It could just be a lookalike, but it looks like it is. Well, made they it. should make it. I don't know. Yeah. They it's should a make a miracle that. plant of our time. <coughs> it is. I got to agree. It is. It is. Well, listen, brother, you're a bad motherfucker. I really appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Forever. For a long time. So it's cool to get in here. And, uh, we're going to hot box this we're week, gonna, too. Yeah, we're going to get in that smoke <laughs> yeah. box. Yeah, People have been asking for you for I'm a long in. time. I got to tell in. you, and, and I say this, you know, in <laughs> some of the some of the smoke boxes, you know, like, because it's the realest shit. Like, we just had Mike Tyson in there, you know, and... Um, How and weird is it to smoke weed with Mike Tyson? That was... I, I've smoked with him before, and, and I, I've smoked with him on a couple se separate occasions aside from there, but one of the places that I smoked with him was at that fucking Leota Machida Rashad Evans fight. Oh, wow. When we all left... You know, after the fight, we were sort of uh, getting to our cars and he ran into me and, and my partner, Kenji, and we were smoking a fat one right there. And he'd be real. How you doing? Let me get ahead of that. I was like, wow. all right, fuck yeah, champ. Here you go. And, and um, you know, yeah, we, we always knew he smoked out. What was crazy about this interview real quick that, that I'll say it like, cause you asked me this in this interview, like, what did you do for the anxieties before? Like, you know, let's say you were going to go on stage or do the shit. Right. So I asked him that similar question. I said, you know, as artists, as athletes, well, before we're going to go do our thing in front of a mass amount of people, you get this nervous energy. What did you do to, you know, deal with that? And he said, I used to get hypnotized before fights. Yeah. You know, and he was saying how he would, the guys that work, work with him would uh, instill these certain words like calmness. You know, that would be a reoccurring word that they would do in the hypnot, you know, in hypnotizing him before a fight so that he would always be calm in the fight and never fight desperate. And always be in control of the situation no matter what happened. And that's how he would, you know, get that nervous energy down and, and, and uh, be able to fight with such focus. But the other interesting thing he said was that he never fought. I mean, he was smoking the whole time. You know, he's a big weed head since he was like 10 years old, apparently. But he said that he was smoking, you know, but not necessarily when he was training. They would give him pharmaceuticals when he was training, you know, shit that he wouldn't feel nothing, but he didn't have focus. What kind of pharmaceuticals? He said uh, some of it was fentanyl, some Percocet, some... Fentanyl wasn't even around back then. Well, it's a, a form of it, you know, like, like whatever... Opiate? Yeah, it was an opiate yeah. that was whatever, the, the fentanyl of that time, whatever. I yeah. can't remember what he called it, but there was two or three prescription drugs that they would give him, and he, he said he, he wouldn't feel nothing. He felt good, like there's no pain, no nothing. But the focus that he had was was not not there, right? He said that he smoked weed in one fight, like he smoked weed before one particular fight, and, and he used the Wizenator to get 
through the urine test. <laughs> Somehow he fucking, <laughs> he, he says it in the interview. And, you know, he said that the fight that he had where he was smoked out was with Andrew Galata. Wow. And he said he'd never had so much focus in a fight that it made him realize he should have been smoking weed through every goddamn fight because he focused on everything he was supposed to. He said he broke um, his cheek. He broke his, uh, yeah. his cheek here. He broke and his he, orbital. He, yeah, he broke his orbital. He broke a, a, a rib and part of his back with a body Jesus shot. Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, that was the fight. That was the one and only fight that he, you know, smoked out beforehand. And Andrew Galata got... <laughs> he got flatlined. He, Andrew Galata left the ring. He was like, fuck this. Yeah, and Andrew Galata had been through wars. Oh, yeah, man. I Those mean, Riddick Bow fights were the, crazy. The Riddick Bow fights. I mean, because Riddick Bow was really yeah. good, you know, but um, he didn't hit like Mike. No, 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 no. I don't no. think no one hit like Mike. If you look at, like, some of his early training. Oh, how crazy he looks. <laughs> he was so crazy back then. Yeah. If you look at some of Mike's early training and his footwork, it's almost like, you know, almost like martial arts based. Mm -hmm. The way that he attacked and then he shifts mm -hmm. on yeah. his attack and his footwork. Customato, Customato yeah. was a master. A master. master. Yeah, it wasn't until he, he he switched up and got rid of Kevin Rooney mm -hmm. and you know where the destruction starts happening. I think it was also his, you know, his life was just too crazy. It was just too crazy. Yeah. No one can manage that from the time when he's twenty to you know by the time he retired. I mean, it was probably just. A whirlwind of chaos and it's crazy because he realizes that like mm -hmm. looking back at it and he says that he doesn't train anymore because it awakens a beast in yeah him. <laughs> i know he said that it made me nervous right because it said it because he said that to you too right yeah 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 because yeah, i because i was watching you know your interview mm -hmm. with him and uh one of our guys that was in the back seat asked him hey do you ever train do you ever you know he's like Nah, I don't do that no more. <laughs> yeah, he goes, every now and then I get on the treadmill, and I do some running on the treadmill, but that's it. I would imagine that if he got back in training, he'd get in shape real quick. Oh, I'm sure. Got, and, and, but, sure. you know, it would awaken a beast. <laughs> yeah, they're all like, you can't quit, you can't quit. He's like, fuck yeah. you. Fuck in you. between rounds, he just got up and left. Yep. He's like, He's like push that guy away. <laughs> He's like, you're He's not like, feeling these punches. Done. He knew something was wrong. Well, he knew He's his like, rib was Shit. broke. Well, his eyeball was broke too. Yeah. Or is, is, uh, look, they're trying to put the mouthpiece. Hey, put it in. It's Lou Duva. Yeah, it's Lou Duva. Put it, no, oh, it's no, not it's Lou not Lou Duva. Duva. No, it's not. Who is that guy? It looked like Lou Duva for a second. Put yeah, I mean, you could tell his fucking face is busted <laughs> yeah, right there. It did look fairly normal, but I'm sure it felt like shit. You yeah. know, like it doesn't swell up real bad until later. I, listen, you know, if Andrew Galata, you know, who's been in wars, you know, with Riddick Bowe and other mm -hmm. fighters, like he, he was a no slouch. If he's telling you, I've had enough of this shit, <laughs> let him <laughs> well, go. Let it's him go. Because yeah. he knows. <laughs> yeah. Once they found out that his back was broken and his face was broken, they're probably like, oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, I mean, th think about that. His corner guy was like <laughs> trying to put his mouthpiece back in. I mean, it's so stupid. Once a guy doesn't want to fight, you can't make him fight more. I no. mean, it's yeah, like he he's already dead. flipped that switch inside of his head. You know what I told Mike that he didn't realize? This is the last thing because I know we both got to go. But I said, do you know that all the dudes you fought to get to that title, including, you know, the dudes that, you know, that, that you took titles from, they all stopped fighting after you beat them. None of them wanted to come back and get nothing. They didn't want no part of that heavyweight title after that. He retired so many boxers. 
Oh yeah, he right? doesn't even realize that. Bruce no. Seldon, Tony Tubbs, yeah. go yeah. down the line. All of them. He didn't retire Larry Holmes. Larry Holmes wait until he went to jail and he's like, I'm gonna come back. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's the only guy. Bo Crusher Smith. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, Tyrell Biggs. Mm-hmm. Tyrell uh, Biggs. He definitely retired Tyrell yeah. Biggs. I mean, they were rivals at one point in time. Yeah, he fucked Tyrell Biggs up pretty good. Leon Spinks. Yeah, he's like, you know, yeah, Michael. Yeah, he's like, you know what? I had this title too long. Yeah, it's like that's a wrap. Yeah, enough. Check, please. And he he told me just like, like you know what? I didn't even realize that. Yeah, man, he really did. He retired a lot of people. So we all saw it. He was a force of nature. Yeah, and and I told him the other thing. I told him real quick too was you know like that explanation that he had on his documentary where he. As he's coming to the ring, he knew he had to yeah, fight one. Yeah. He could see it in their eyes. And then once he steps into the ring, he's a god. They're yeah. done, right? And I told him, you know, I was at that Bruce Seldon fight. And um, I saw exactly what you explained in Bruce Seldon. Because Bruce Seldon was knocking fools out left and right. He was like a really good heavyweight. The minute he got in there with Mikey, fanboyed out, tasted that glove, didn't want no more. Yeah, it was an experience. It wasn't just that you were fighting a guy who knew how to fight, but you were fighting Mike Tyson. He was this your this, idol. He was this thing, this cultural yeah. phenomenon. He was thought to be at that time. Everybody was thinking he's the greatest heavyweight of all time. Just oh, a destroyer. Yeah. yeah, no one had an answer for him. Nah, you know, Selden. Selden. He he pretty much you know he was a fan. That was his yeah. idol, and he he got totally got rocked. He was so huge at the time that when Buster Douglas beat him, even though I knew he beat him, I watched the fight afterwards. I couldn't believe it. I'm yeah. like, this is, he's going to get up. It yeah. was Bruce Seldon. Oh, look how Jack Bruce Seldon was. I mean, yeah, he was he's a, a big boy, man. A fucking tank. Yeah, and he was he, he was knocking people mm-hmm. out. I mean, look, 29 knockouts, and he was fighting yeah. good guys. Oh, yeah. Cause he I, was the I, WBA heavyweight champion. Yeah, at the time. I mean, I followed his career, too. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, he totally fanboyed out on Mike, man. Mike. <laughs> well, look at the stare down. You see him in the stare down. You're looking at that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh no, you made a tremendous mistake tremendous getting here tonight. Tremendous mistake, bro. Look yeah. at that. Look how much bigger Selden is, dude. He's well, a big boy, bro. He wasn't taking none of that shit. Tyson's footwork and his ability yeah. to close the distance and bobbing and weaving. I mean, it was like there was nobody before him like that. No, nah, man. I There'll mean, never be another guy like that. Because, as a heavyweight, he was just so fast, too. Because realistically, the guys who trained him, yeah. they had a certain technique and nobody uses it. Well, it was not just that. It was what, what Mike talked about in the podcast about being hypnotized. Yeah. I mean, from the time he was a little boy. And, you know, the fact that he had nothing before that. Everything was, his life was shit. It was all pain and suffering and poverty. And yeah. then all of a sudden, some guy comes along and rescues him and takes him, teaches him out of box. And then yeah. all of a sudden, he gets recognition and, and, and positive feedback. And he felt like he was something special. Boom. <laughs> he fucking hit that canvas hard. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. didn't want it. I, I we kind of forget sometimes what it was like watching those fights. Till you go back and watch them now, I mean, there's there's amazing fighters right now, like the like Terence Crawford who just won uh, Saturday night. Amazing, amazing boxers. But what Mike was was something. He was something completely different. <laughs> yeah, he was something that like transcended sports. Like, yeah, everybody wanted to see him fight. You know, if you believed in conspiracy theories, right? He didn't even hit him right there. He just fell on purpose, right? Yeah. If you believe in conspiracy theories, right, you think about it like this, right? Mike was knocking guys out in the first round, and people were paying a whole lot of money for, for tickets and pay-per-view. You know, when you look at it, it looks like they were trying to slow his role and put in a guy like Evander Holyfield, who was a brawler. 
Mm. He could box, but he could brawl and take the fight 11 rounds and, you know, make it a fucking great pay-per-view where Mike would totally ruin the pay-per-view and knock your ass out in a, in a minute. And when you look at it, the way boxing was for such a long time, I wouldn't put it past it that, you know, a lot of the shit that happened to him was manipulated so that it would slow his role. What, what, what kind of shit? Like, what do you mean? Well, you know, the people that he had around him. I mean, you know, yeah, Don King around him. He, he yeah. took all his, 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 his people that he trusted away from him, mm-hmm. put different trainers in his corner, different people that were influencing him, and it, it just took him backwards, man. And, and all the people that actually helped got him there were fucking gone. Mm-hmm. And those were the guys that was actually giving him guidance as to, you know, how to conduct yourself, be a man and, and all that stuff. And he got around the vultures, man. And they and to me, I think Don King being Don King, he stood more money. He stood uh, a chance to make more money with someone taking out the fight, you know, 11 to 12 rounds as opposed to one. Well, he just, he gave mike the worst deals ever too yeah I and mean, the whole thing was terrible he stole money from him to this day mike hates him yeah and yeah, it's all terrible yeah. anyway my thank man. you my man thank you brother i'll see you in a Appreciate couple days it. yeah for sure right on. i'm looking forward to it right on. bye everybody